0: this is chapter 70 of roughing it this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer visit librivox.org roughing it by mark twain chapter 70 we stopped some time at one of the plantations to rest ourselves and refresh the horses we had a chatty conversation with several gentlemen present But there was one person—a middle-aged man, with an absent look in his face—who simply glanced up, gave us good-day, and lapsed again into the meditations which our coming had interrupted. The planters whispered us not to mind him—crazy. They said he was in the islands for his health, was a preacher, his home Michigan, They said that if he woke up presently, and fell to talking about a correspondence which he had some time held with Mr. Greeley—about a trifle of some kind—we must humour him, and listen with interest, and we must humour his fancy that this correspondence was the talk of the world. It was easy to see that he was a gentle creature, and that his madness had nothing vicious in it. He looked pale, and a little worn as if with perplexing thought and anxiety of mind. He sat a long time looking at the floor, and at intervals muttering to himself, and nodding his head acquiescingly, or shaking it in mild protest. He was lost in his thought or in his memories. We continued our talk with the planters, branching from subject to subject. But at last the word circumstance, casually dropped in the course of conversation, attracted his attention and brought an eager look into his countenance. He faced about in his chair, and said, "'Circumstance? What circumstance?' "'Ah, I know, I know too well. So you have heard of it, too?' with a sigh. "'Well, no matter. All the world has heard of it. All the world. The whole world. It is a large world, too, for a thing to travel so far in, now, isn't it? Yes, yes.' The Greeley correspondence with Ericsson has created the saddest and bitterest controversy on both sides of the ocean, and still they keep it up. It makes us famous, but at what a sorrowful sacrifice! I was so sorry when I heard that it had caused that bloody and distressful war over there in Italy. It was little comfort to me, after so much bloodshed, to know that the victors sided with me, and the vanquished with Greeley. It is little comfort to know that Horace Greeley is responsible for the battle of Sadoa and not me. Queen Victoria wrote me that she felt just as I did about it. She said that, as much as she was opposed to Greeley and the spirit he showed in the correspondence with me, she would not have had Sadoa happen for hundreds of dollars. I can show you her letter, if you would like to see it. But, gentlemen, much as you may think you know about that unhappy correspondence, you cannot know the straight of it till you hear it from my lips. It has always been garbled in the journals, and even in history—yes, even in history think of it. Let uh, me—please let me give you the matter exactly as it occurred. I truly will not abuse your confidence." Then he leaned forward—all interest, all earnestness—and told his story and told it appealingly, too, and yet in the simplest and most unpretentious way—indeed in such a way as to suggest to one all the time that this was a faithful, honorable witness, giving evidence in the sacred interest of justice, and under oath. He said, Mrs. Beasley, Mrs. Jackson Beasley, widow of the village of Campbellton, Kansas, wrote me about a matter which was near her heart, a matter which many might think trivial but to her it was a thing of deep concern. I was living in Michigan, then, serving in the ministry. She was, and is, an estimable woman, a woman to whom poverty and hardship have proven incentives to industry in place of discouragements. Her only treasure was her son William, a youth just verging upon manhood, religious, amiable, and sincerely attached to agriculture. He was the widow's comfort and her pride— and so moved by her love for him she wrote me about a matter as i have said before which lay near her heart because it lay near her boys she desired me to confer with mr greeley about turnips turnips were the dream of her child's young ambition while other youths were frittering away in frivolous amusements the precious years of budding vigor which god had given them for useful preparation this boy was patiently enriching his mind with information concerning turnips. The sentiment which he felt toward the turnip was akin to adoration. He could not think of the turnip without emotion. He could not speak of it calmly. He could not contemplate it without exaltation. He could not eat it without shedding tears. All the poetry in his sensitive nature was in sympathy with the gracious vegetable." With the earliest pipe of dawn he sought his patch, and when the curtaining night drove him from it he shut himself up with his books and garnered statistics till sleep overcame him. On rainy days he sat and talked hours together with his mother about turnips. When company came he made it his loving duty to put aside everything else and converse with them all the day long of his great joy in the turnip. And yet was this joy rounded and complete? Was there no secret alloy of unhappiness in it? Alas, there was. There was a canker gnawing at his heart. The noblest inspiration of his soul eluded his endeavor. Viz. he could not make of the turnip a climbing vine. Months went by. The bloom forsook his cheek. The fire faded out of his eye. Sighings and abstraction usurped the place of smiles and cheerful converse. But a watchful eye noted these things, and in time a motherly sympathy unsealed the secret. Hence the letter to me. She pleaded for attention. She said her boy was dying by inches. I was a stranger to Mr. Greeley, but what of that? The matter was urgent. I wrote, and begged him to solve the difficult problem, if possible, and save the student's life. My interest grew until it partook of the anxiety of the mother. I waited in much suspense. At last the answer came. I found that I could not read it readily, the handwriting being unfamiliar, and my emotions somewhat wrought up. It seemed to refer in part to the boy's case, but chiefly to other and irrelevant matters such as paving-stones, electricity, oysters, and something which I took to be absolution or agrarianism. I could not be certain which. Still, these appeared to be simply casual mentions, nothing more friendly in spirit without doubt, but lacking the connection or coherence necessary to make them useful. I judged that my understanding was affected by my feelings, and so laid the letter away till morning. In the morning I read it again, but with difficulty and uncertainty still, for I had lost some little rest, and my mental vision seemed clouded. The note was more connected now, but did not meet the emergency it was expected to meet. It was too discursive." It appeared to read as follows, though I was not certain of some of the words. Polygamy dissembles majesty. Extracts redeem polarity. Causes hitherto exist. Ovations pursue wisdom. Or warts inherit and condemn. Boston botany, cakes, folly undertakes. But who shall allay? We fear not. R-r-r-ly. But there did not seem to be a word about turnips. There seemed to be no suggestion as to how they might be made to grow like vines. There was not even a reference to the Beazilies. I slept upon the matter. I ate no supper, neither any breakfast next morning. So I resumed my work with a brain refreshed and was very hopeful. Now the letter took a different aspect, all save the signature— which later i judged to be only a harmless affection of hebrew the epistle was necessarily from mr greeley for it bore the printed heading of the tribune and i had written to no one else there the letter i say had taken a different aspect but still its language was eccentric and avoided the issue it now appeared to say bolivia extemporizes mackerel borax esteems polygamy sausages wither in the east Creation perdue is done, for woes inherent one can damn. Buttons, buttons, corks, geology under rates, but we shall allay. My beer's out. I was evidently overworked. My comprehension was impaired. Therefore I gave two days to recreation, and then returned to my task greatly refreshed. The letter now took this form. Poltices do sometimes choke swine, tulips reduce posterity—causes leather to resist. Our notions empower wisdom—her let's afford while we can—butter, but any cakes, fill any undertaker, we'll wean him from his filly—we feel hot. Yerxli hives village." I was still not satisfied these generalities did not meet the question. They were crisp, and vigorous, and delivered with a confidence that almost compelled conviction. But at such a time as this, with a human life at stake, they seemed inappropriate, worldly, and in bad taste. At any other time I would have been not only glad, but proud, to receive from a man like Greeley a letter of this kind, and would have studied it earnestly, and tried to improve myself all I could but now, with that poor boy in his far home languishing for relief, I had no heart for learning. Three days passed by, and I read the note again. Again its tenor had changed. It now appeared to say, Potations do sometimes wake wines. Turnips restrain passion. Causes necessary to state. Infest the poor widow. Her lord's effects will be void. But dirt— bathing etc etc followed unfairly will worm him from his folly so swear not yurksweli hives this was more like it but i was unable to proceed i was too much worn the word turnips brought temporary joy and encouragement but my strength was so much impaired and the delay might be so perilous for the boy that i relinquished the idea of pursuing the translation further and resolved to do what i ought to have done at first i sat down and wrote mr greeley as follows dear sir i fear i do not entirely comprehend your kind note it cannot be possible sir that turnips restrain passion at least the study or contemplation of turnips cannot for it is this very employment that has scorched our poor friend's mind and sapped his bodily strength but if they do restrain it will you bear with us a little further and explain how they should be prepared i observe that you say causes necessary to state but you have omitted to state them under a misapprehension you seem to attribute to me interested motives in this matter to call it by no harsher term but i assure you dear sir that if i seem to be infesting the widow it is all seeming and void of reality It is from no seeking of mine that I am in this position. She asked me herself to write you. I never have infested her. Indeed, I scarcely know her. I do not infest anybody. I try to go along, in my humble way, doing as near right as I can, never harming anybody, and never throwing out insinuations. As for her lord and his effects, they are of no interest to me. I trust i have effects enough of my own shall endeavour to get along with them at any rate and not go mousing around to get a hold of somebody's that are void but do you not see this woman is a widow she has no lord he is dead or pretended to be when they buried him therefore no amount of dirt bathing etc etc however unfairly followed will be likely to worm him from his folly if being dead and a ghost is folly Your closing remark is as unkind as it was uncalled for, and if report says true, you might have applied it to yourself, sir, with more point and less impropriety. Very truly yours, Simon Erickson. In the course of a few days, Mr. Greeley did what would have saved a world of trouble, and much mental and bodily suffering and misunderstanding, if he had done it sooner. To wit, he sent an intelligible rescript or translation of his original note— made in a plain hand by his clerk. Then the mystery cleared, and I saw that his heart had been right all the time. I will recite the note in its clarified form. TRANSLATION Potatoes do sometimes make vines. Turnips remain passive. Cause unnecessary to state. Inform the poor widow her lad's efforts will be vain. But diet, bathing, etc., etc., followed uniformly— will wean him from his folly. So fear not. Yours, Horace Greeley. But alas, it was too late, gentlemen, too late. The criminal delay had done its work. Young Beasley was no more. His spirit had taken its flight to a land where all anxieties shall be charmed away, all desires gratified, all ambitions realized. Poor lad! They laid him to his rest, with a turnip in each hand. So ended Erickson, and lapsed again into nodding, mumbling, and abstraction. The company broke up and left him so, but they did not say what drove him crazy. In the momentary confusion I forgot to ask. End of chapter 70 This is chapter 71 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 71 At four o'clock in the afternoon, we were winding down a mountain of dreary and desolate lava to the sea, and closing our pleasant land journey. This lava is the accumulation of ages, One torrent of fire after another has rolled down here in old times, and built up the island structure higher and higher. Underneath it is honeycombed with caves. It would be of no use to dig wells in such a place. They would not hold water. You would not find any for them to hold, for that matter. Consequently, the planters depend upon cisterns. The last lava flow occurred here so long ago that there are none now living who witnessed it. In one place it enclosed and burned down a grove of coconut trees, and the holes in the lava where the trunks stood are still visible. Their sides retain the impression of the bark. The trees fell upon the burning river, and, becoming partly submerged, left in it the perfect counterpart of every knot and branch and leaf, and even nut. curiosity-seekers of a long distant day to gaze upon and wonder at. There were doubtless plenty of Kanaka sentinels on guard hereabouts at that time, but they did not leave casts of their figures in the lava as the Roman sentinels at Herculaneum and Pompeii did. It is a pity, it is so, because such things are so interesting, and so it is. They probably went away—they went away early, perhaps. However, they had their merits the romans exhibited the higher pluck but the kanakas showed the sounder judgment shortly we came in sight of that spot whose history is so familiar to every schoolboy in the wide world Kealakekua bay the place where captain cook the great circumnavigator was killed by the natives nearly a hundred years ago the setting sun was flaming upon it a summer shower was falling and it was spanned by two magnificent rainbows two men who were in advance of us rode through one of these and for a moment their garments shone with a more than regal splendor why did not captain cook have taste enough to call his great discovery the rainbow islands these charming spectacles are present to you at every turn they are common in all the islands they are visible every day and frequently at night also not the silvery bow we see once in an age in the states by moonlight but barred with all bright and beautiful colors like the children of the sun and rain. I saw one of them a few nights ago. What the sailors call rain-dogs, little patches of rainbow, are often seen drifting about the heavens in these latitudes like stained cathedral windows. Kealakekua Bay is a little curve like the last kink of a snail-shell winding deep into the land, seemingly not more than a mile wide from shore to shore. It is bounded on one side, where the murder was done, by a little flat plain, on which stands a coconut grove and some ruined houses. A steep wall of lava, a thousand feet high at the upper end, and three or four hundred at the lower, comes down from the mountain, and bounds the inner extremity of it. From this wall the place takes its name Kealakekua, which in the native tongue signifies the pathways of the gods they say and still believe in spite of their liberal education in christianity that the great god lono who used to live upon the hillside always travelled that causeway when urgent business connected with heavenly affairs called him down to the seashore in a hurry as the red sun looked across the placid ocean through the tall clean stems of the coconut trees like a blooming whisky bloat through the bars of a city prison I went and stood in the edge of the water, on the flat rock pressed by Captain Cook's feet, when the blow was dealt which took away his life, and tried to picture in my mind the doomed man struggling in the midst of the multitude of exasperated savages, the men in the ship crowding to the vessel's side and gazing in anxious dismay toward the shore, the—but I discovered that I could not do it. It was growing dark. The rain began to fall. We could see that the distant boomerang was helplessly becalmed at sea and so i adjourned to the cheerless little box of a warehouse and sat down to smoke and think and wished the ship would make the land for we had not eaten much for ten hours and were viciously hungry plain unvarnished history takes the romance out of captain cook's assassination and renders a deliberate verdict of justifiable homicide wherever he went among the islands He was cordially received and welcomed by the inhabitants, and his ships lavishly supplied with all manner of food. He returned these kindnesses with insult and ill-treatment. Perceiving that the people took him for the long-vanished and lamented god Lono, he encouraged them in the delusion for the sake of the limitless power it gave him. But during the famous disturbance at this spot, and while he and his comrades were surrounded by fifteen thousand maddened savages— HE RECEIVED A HURT, AND BETRAYED HIS EARTHLY ORIGIN WITH A groan. IT WAS HIS DEATH-WARRANT. INSTANTLY A SHOUT WENT UP, HE groans. HE IS NOT A GOD. SO THEY CLOSED IN UPON HIM, AND DISPATCHED HIM. HIS FLESH WAS STRIPPED FROM THE BONES, AND BURNED, EXCEPT NINE POUNDS OF IT, WHICH WERE SENT ON BOARD THE SHIPS. THE HEART WAS HUNG UP IN A NATIVE HUT, WHERE IT WAS FOUND AND EATEN BY THREE CHILDREN, WHO MISTOOK IT FOR THE HEART OF A DOG. One of these children grew to be a very old man, and died in Honolulu a few years ago. Some of Cook's bones were recovered and consigned to the deep by the officers of the ships. Small blame should attach to the natives for the killing of Cook. They treated him well. In return, he abused them. He and his men inflicted bodily injury upon many of them at different times, and killed at least three of them before they offered any proportionate retaliation. Near the shore we found Cook's Monument, only a coconut stump, four feet high, and about a foot in diameter at the butt. It had lava boulders piled around its base to hold it up and keep it in its place, and it was entirely sheathed over, from top to bottom, with rough, discolored sheets of copper, such as ships' bottoms are coppered with. Each sheet had a rude inscription scratched upon it, with a nail, apparently and in every case the execution was wretched. Most of these merely recorded the visits of British naval commanders to the spot, but one of them bore this legend. Near this spot fell Captain James Cook, the distinguished navigator, who discovered these islands A.D. 1778. After Cook's murder, his second-in-command on board the ship opened fire upon the swarms of natives on the beach, and one of his cannon-balls cut this coconut-tree short off, and left this monumental stump standing. It looked sad and lonely enough to us out there in the rainy twilight. But there is no other monument to Captain Cook. True, up on the mountainside we had passed by a large enclosure like an ample hog-pen built of lava-blocks, which marks the spot where Cook's flesh was stripped from his bones and burned— But this is not properly a monument, since it was erected by the natives themselves, and less to do honor to the circumnavigator than for the sake of convenience in roasting him. A thing like the guide-board was elevated above this pen on a tall pole, and formerly there was an inscription upon it, describing the memorable occurrence that had there taken place. But the sun and the wind have long ago so defaced it as to render it illegible." Toward midnight a fine breeze sprang up, and the schooner soon worked herself into the bay and cast anchor. The boat came ashore for us, and in a little while the clouds and the rain were all gone. The moon was beaming tranquilly down on land and sea, and we, too, were stretched upon the deck, sleeping the refreshing sleep and dreaming the happy dreams that are only vouchsafed to the weary and the innocent. End of chapter 71 This is chapter 72 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Chapter 72. In the breezy morning, we went ashore and visited the ruined temple of the last god Lono. The high chief cook of this temple, the priest who presided over it and roasted the human sacrifices, was uncle to Obukia, and at one time that youth was an apprentice-priest under him. Obukia was a young native of fine mind, who, together with three other native boys, was taken to New England by the captain of a whale-ship during the reign of Kamehameha first, and they were the means of attracting the attention of the religious world to their country. This resulted in the sending of missionaries there— and this Obukia was the very same sensitive savage who sat down on the church steps and wept because his people did not have the Bible. That incident has been very elaborately painted in many a charming Sunday-school book. I and told so plaintively and so tenderly that I have cried over it in Sunday-school myself, on general principles although at a time when i did not know much and could not understand why the people of the sandwich islands needed to worry so much about it as long as they did not know there was a bible at all obukia was converted and educated and was to have returned to his native land with the first missionaries had he lived the other native youths made the voyage and two of them did good service but the third william Kanui, fell from grace afterward for a time and when the gold excitement broke out in California, he journeyed thither and went to mining, although he was fifty years old. He succeeded pretty well, but the failure of Page Bacon and Company relieved him of six thousand dollars, and then, to all intents and purposes, he was a bankrupt in his old age, and he resumed service in the pulpit again. He died in Honolulu in 1864 quite a broad tract of land near the temple extending from the sea to the mountain top was sacred to the god lono in olden times so sacred that if a common native set his sacrilegious foot upon it it was judicious for him to make his will because his time had come he might go around it by water but he could not cross it it was well sprinkled with pagan temples and stocked with awkward homely idols carved out of logs of wood There was a temple devoted to prayers for rain, and with fine sagacity it was placed at a point so well up on the mountainside that if you prayed there twenty-four times a day for rain you would be likely to get it every time. You would seldom get to your Amen before you would have to hoist your umbrella. And there was a large temple near at hand which was built in a single night, in the midst of storm and thunder and rain, by the ghastly hands of dead men. Tradition says that by the weird glare of the lightning, a noiseless multitude of phantoms were seen at their strange labor far up the mountainside at dead of night, flitting hither and thither and bearing great lava blocks clasped in their nerveless fingers, appearing and disappearing as the pallid luster fell upon their forms and faded away again. Even to this day, it is said, the natives hold this dread structure in awe and reverence and will not pass by it in the night at noon i observed a bevy of nude native young ladies bathing in the sea and went and sat down on their clothes to keep them from being stolen i begged them to come out for the sea was rising and i was satisfied that they were running some risk but they were not afraid and presently went on with their sport they were finished swimmers and divers and enjoyed themselves to the last degree they swam races splashed and ducked and tumbled each other about and filled the air with their laughter it is said that the first thing an islander learns is how to swim learning to walk being a matter of smaller consequence comes afterward one hears tales of native men and women swimming ashore from vessels many miles at sea more miles indeed than i dare vouch for or even mention and they tell of a native diver who went down in thirty or forty foot waters and brought up an anvil. I think he swallowed the anvil afterwards, if my memory serves me. However, I will not urge this point. I have spoken, several times, of the god Lono. I may as well furnish two or three sentences concerning him. The idol the natives worshipped for him was a slender, unornamented staff, twelve feet long. Tradition says he was a favorite god on the island of Hawaii a great king who had been deified for meritorious services just our own fashion of rewarding heroes with a difference that uh, we would have made him a postmaster instead of a god no doubt in an angry moment he slew his wife a goddess named kaikilani ai remorse of conscience drove him mad and tradition presents us the singular spectacle of a god travelling on the shoulder for in his gnawing grief he wandered about from place to place boxing and wrestling with all whom he met of course this pastime soon lost its novelty inasmuch as it must necessarily have been the case that when so powerful a deity sent a frail human opponent to grass he never came back any more therefore he instituted games called makahiki and ordered that they should be held in his honor and then sailed for foreign lands on a three-corner draught stating that he would return some day—and that was the last of Lono. He was never seen any more—his raft got swamped, perhaps—but the people always expected his return, and thus they were easily led to accept Captain Cook as the restored god. Some of the old natives believed Cook was Lono to the day of their death, but many did not, for they could not understand how he could die if he was a god only a mile or so from Kealakekua Bay is a spot of historic interest, the place where the last battle was fought for idolatry. Of course we visited it, and came away as wise as most people do, who go and gaze upon such mementos of the past when in an unreflective mood. While the first missionaries were on their way around the Horn, the idolatrous customs which had obtained in the island, as far back as tradition reached, were suddenly broken up, Old Kamehameha I was dead, and his son, Liholiho, the new king, was a free-liver, a roistering, dissolute fellow, and hated the restraints of the ancient taboo. His assistant in the government, Kahumanu, the queen-dowager, was proud and high-spirited, and hated the taboo because it restricted the privileges of her sex, and degraded all women very nearly to the level of brutes. So the case stood. Liholiho had half a mind to put his foot down, Kahumanu had a whole mind to badger him into doing it, and whiskey did the rest. It was probably the rest. It was probably the first time whiskey ever prominently figured as an aid to civilization. Liho Liho came up to Kai as drunk as a piper and attended a great feast. The determined queen spurred his drunken courage up to a reckless pitch, and then, while all the multitude stared in blank dismay, he moved deliberately forward and sat down with the women. They saw him eat from the same vessel with them, and were appalled. Terrible moments drifted slowly by, and still the king ate, still he lived, still the lightnings of the insulted gods were withheld. Then conviction came like a revelation. The superstitions of a hundred generations passed from before the people like a cloud, and a shout went up. The taboo is broken! the taboo is broken. Thus did King Liholiho and his dreadful whiskey preach the first sermon, and prepare the way for the new gospel that was speeding southward over the waves of the Atlantic. The taboo, broken, and destruction failing to follow the awful sacrilege, the people, with that childlike precipitancy which has always characterized them, jumped to the conclusion that their gods were a weak and wretched swindle, just as they formerly jumped to the conclusion that captain cook was no god merely because he groaned and promptly killed him without stopping to inquire whether a god might not groan as well as a man if it suited his convenience to do it and satisfied that the idols were powerless to protect themselves they went to work at once and pulled them down hacked them to pieces applied the torch annihilated them the pagan priests were furious and well they might be They had held the fattest offices in the land, and now they were beggared. They had been great, they had stood above the chiefs, and now they were vagabonds. They raised a revolt, they scared a number of people into joining their standard, and Bekua Kalani, an ambitious offshoot of royalty, was easily persuaded to become their leader. In the first skirmish the idolaters triumphed over the royal army sent against them, and full of confidence they resolved to march upon Kailua the king sent an envoy to try and conciliate them and came very near being an envoy short by the operation the savages not only refused to listen to him but wanted to kill him so the king sent his men forth under major-general Kalaimoku, and the two host met at kuamu the battle was long and fierce men and women fighting side by side as was the custom and when the day was done the rebels were flying in every direction in hopeless panic and idolatry and the taboo were dead in the land. The royalists marched gaily home to Koailua, glorifying the new dispensation. There is no power in the gods, said they. They are a vanity and a lie. The army with idols was weak. The army without idols was strong and victorious. The nation was without a religion. The missionary ship arrived in safety shortly afterward. Timed by providential exactness to meet the emergency, and the gospel was planted as in virgin soil. End of chapter 72. This is chapter 73 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. RUFFING IT BY MARK Twain, CHAPTER 73 At noon we hired a kanaka to take us down to the ancient ruins at Honuanan, in his canoe, price two dollars, reasonable enough for a sea voyage of eight miles, counting both ways. The native canoe is an irresponsible-looking contrivance. I cannot think of anything to liken it to but a boy's sled-runner hollowed out, and that does not quite convey the correct idea." It is about fifteen feet long, high and pointed at both ends, is a foot and a half or two feet deep, and is so narrow that if you wedged a fat man into it, you might not get him out again. It sits on top of the water like a duck, but it has an outrigger and does not upset easily, if you keep still. This outrigger is formed of two long bent sticks like plough handles, which project from one side, and to their outer ends— is bound a curved beam composed of an extremely light wood, which skims along the surface of the water, and thus saves you from an upset on that side, while the outrigger's weight is not so easily lifted as to make an upset on the other side, a thing to be greatly feared. Still, until one gets used to sitting perched upon this knife-blade, he is apt to reason within himself that it would be more comfortable if there were just an outrigger or so on the other side also. I had the bow-seat, and Billings sat amidships and faced the Kanaka, who occupied the stern of the craft, and did the paddling. With the first stroke, the trim shell of a thing shot out from the shore like an arrow. There was not much to see. While we were on the shallow water of the reef, it was past time to look down into the limpid depths at the large bunches of branching coral, the unique shrubbery of the sea. We lost that, though, when we got out into the dead blue water of the deep. But we had the picture of the surf then dashing angrily against the crag-bound shore and sending a foaming spray high into the air. There was interest in this beetling border, too, for it was honeycombed with quaint caves and arches and tunnels, and had a rude semblance of the dilapidated architecture of ruined keeps and castles rising out of the restless sea when this novelty ceased to be a novelty, we turned our eyes shoreward and gazed at the long mountain, with its rich green forests stretching up into the curtaining clouds, and at the specks of houses in the rearward distance and the diminished schooner riding sleepily at anchor. And when these grew tiresome, we dashed boldly into the midst of a school of huge, beastly porpoises engaged at their eternal game of arching over a wave and disappearing, and then doing it over again and keeping it up always circling over, in that way, like so many well-submerged wheels. But the porpoises wheeled themselves away, and then we were thrown upon our own resources. It did not take many minutes to discover that the sun was blazing like a bonfire, and that the weather was of a melting temperature. It had a drowsing effect, too. In one place we came upon a large company of naked natives, of both sexes and all ages, amusing themselves with the national pastime of surf-bathing each heathen would paddle three or four hundred yards out to sea taking a short board with him then face the shore and wait for a particularly prodigious billow to come along at the right moment he would fling his board upon its foamy crest and himself upon the board and here he would come whizzing by like a bombshell it did not seem that a lightning express train could shoot along at a more hair-lifting speed I tried surf-bathing once, subsequently, but made a failure of it. I got the board placed right, and at the right moment, too, but missed the connection myself. The board struck the shore in three-quarters of a second, without any cargo, and I struck the bottom about the same time, with a couple of barrels of water in me. None but natives ever master the art of surf-bathing thoroughly. At the end of an hour we had made the four miles, and landed on a level point of land upon which was a wide extent of old ruins, with many a tall coconut-tree growing among them. Here was the ancient city of refuge, a vast enclosure whose stone walls were twenty feet thick at the base, and fifteen feet high, an oblong square, a thousand and forty feet one way, and a fraction under seven hundred the other. Within this enclosure, in early times, has been three rude temples, each two hundred and ten feet long by one hundred wide and thirteen high. In those days, if a man killed another anywhere on the island, the relatives were privileged to take the murderer's life, and then a chase for life and liberty began the outlawed criminal flying through pathless forests and over mountain and plain, with his hopes fixed upon the protecting walls of the city of refuge and the avenger of blood following hotly after him sometimes the race was kept up to the very gates of the temple and the panting pair sped through long files of excited natives who watched the contest with flashing eye and dilated nostril encouraging the hunted refugee with sharp inspiring ejaculations and sending up a ringing shout of exultation when the saving gates closed upon him and the cheated pursuer sank exhausted at the threshold but sometimes the flying criminal fell under the hand of the avenger at the very door, when one more brave stride, one more brief second of time, would have brought his feet upon the sacred ground and barred him against all harm. Where did these isolated pagans get this idea of a city of refuge? This ancient Oriental custom. The old sanctuary was sacred to all, even to rebels in arms and invading armies. Once, within its walls, and confession made to the priest, and absolution obtained, the wretch with a price upon his head could go forth without fear and without danger. He was taboo, and to harm him was death. The routed rebels in the lost battle for idolatry fled to this place to claim sanctuary, and many were thus saved. Close to the corner of the great enclosure is a round structure of stone, some six or eight feet high, with a level top about ten or twelve feet in diameter. This was the place of execution. A high palisade of coconut piles shut out the cruel scenes from the vulgar multitude. Here criminals were killed, the flesh stripped from the bones and burned, and the bones secreted in holes in the body of the structure. If the man had been guilty of a high crime, the entire corpse was burned. The walls of the temple are a study. The same food for speculation that is offered the visitor to the pyramids of Egypt he will find here, the mystery of how they were constructed by the people unacquainted with science and mechanics. The natives have no invention of their own for hoisting heavy weights, they had no beasts of burden, and they had never even shown any knowledge of the properties of the lever. Yet some of the lava-blocks quarried out, brought over rough broken ground, and built into this wall six or seven feet from the ground, are of prodigious size, and would weigh tons. How did they transport and how raise them?" both the inner and outer surfaces of the walls present a smooth front and are very creditable specimens of masonry the blocks are of all manner of shapes and sizes but yet are fitted together with the neatest exactness the gradual narrowing of the wall from the base upward is accurately preserved no cement was used but the edifice is firm and compact and is capable of resisting storm and decay for centuries who built this temple and how was it built, and when, are mysteries that may never be unraveled. Outside of these ancient walls lies a sort of coffin-shaped stone eleven feet four inches long and three feet square at the small end—it would weigh a few thousand pounds—which the High Chief, who held sway over this district many centuries ago, brought thither on his shoulder one day to use as a lounge. This circumstance is established by the most reliable traditions. He used to lie down on it, in his indolent way, and keep an eye on his subjects at work for him, and see that there was no soldiering done. And no doubt there was not any done to speak of, because he was a man of that sort of build that incites to attention to business on the part of an employee. He was fourteen or fifteen feet high. When he stretched himself at full length on his lounge, his legs hung down over the end, and when he snored, he woke the dead. These facts are all attested by irrefragable tradition. On the other side of the temple is a monstrous seven-ton rock, eleven feet long, seven feet wide, and three feet thick. It is raised a foot or a foot and a half above the ground, and rests upon half a dozen little stony pedestals. The same old fourteen-footer brought it down from the mountain, merely for fun—he had his own notions about fun and propped it up as we find it now and as others may find it a century hence for it would take a score of horses to budget from its position they say that fifty or sixty years ago the proud queen kahumanu used to fly to this rock for safety whenever she had been making trouble with her fierce husband and hide under it until his wrath was appeased but these kanakas will lie and this statement is one of their ablest efforts for Kahumanu was six feet high and she was bulky she was built like an ox and she could no more have squeezed herself under that rock than she could have passed between the cylinders of a sugar-mill what could she gain by it even if she succeeded to be chased and abused by a savage husband could not be otherwise than humiliating to her high spirit yet it could never make her feel so flat as an hour's repose under that rock-wood We walked a mile over a raised, macadamized road of uniform width, a road paved with flat stones, and exhibiting in its every detail a considerable degree of engineering skill. Some say that that wise old pagan, Kamehameha I, planned and built it, but others say it was built so long before his time that the knowledge of who constructed it has passed out of the traditions. In either case, however, as the handiwork of an untaught and degraded race, it is a thing of pleasing interest. The stones are worn and smooth and pushed apart in places, so that the road has the exact appearance of those ancient paved highways leading out of Rome which one sees in pictures. The object of our tramp was to visit a great natural curiosity at the base of the foothills a congealed cascade of lava. Some old forgotten volcanic eruption sent its broad river of fire down the mountainside here and it poured down in a great torrent from an overhanging bluff some fifty feet high to the ground below the flaming torrent cooled in the winds from the sea and remains there to-day all seamed and frost and rippled in a petrified niagara it is very picturesque and withal so natural that one might almost imagine it still flowed a smaller stream trickled over the cliff and built up an isolated pyramid about thirty feet high which has the semblance of a mass of large gnarled and knotted vines, and roots, and stems intricately twisted and woven together. We passed in behind the cascade and the pyramid, and found the bluff pierced by several cavernous tunnels, whose crooked courses we followed a long distance. Two of these winding tunnels stand as proof of nature's mining abilities. Their floors are level, they are seven feet wide, and their roofs are gently arched. Their height is not uniform, however. We pass through one a hundred feet long, which leads through a spur of the hill and opens out well up in the sheer wall of a precipice, whose foot rests in the waves of the sea. It is a commodious tunnel, except that there are occasional places in it where one must stoop to pass under. The roof is lava, of course, and is thickly studded with little lava-pointed icicles an inch long, which hardened as they dripped. They project as closely together as the iron teeth of a corn sheller, and if one will stand up straight and walk any distance there, he can get his hair combed free of charge. End of chapter 73. This is chapter 74 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. ROUGHING IT BY MARK Twain, CHAPTER 74 We got back to the schooner in good time, and then sailed down to Kau, where we disembarked and took final leave of the vessel. Next day we bought horses, and bent our way over the summer-clad mountain terraces, toward the great volcano of Kilauea. Kilauea. We made nearly a two days' journey of it, but that was on account of laziness. Toward sunset on the second day we reached an elevation of some four thousand feet above sea level, and as we picked our careful way through billowy wastes of lava long generations ago stricken dead and cold in the climax of its tossing fury, we began to come upon signs of the near presence of the volcano—signs in the nature of ragged fissures that discharged jets of sulfurous vapor into the air, hot from the molten ocean down in the bowels of the mountain. Shortly the crater came into view. I have seen Vesuvius since, but it was a mere toy, a child's volcano, a soup-kettle, compared to this. Mount Vesuvius is a shapely cone thirty-six hundred feet high its crater, an inverted cone only three hundred feet deep, and not more than a thousand feet in diameter, if as much as that. Its fires meager, modest, and docile. But here was a vast perpendicular walled cellar, nine hundred feet deep in some places, thirteen hundred in others, level, floored, and ten miles in circumference. Here was a yawning pit upon whose floor the armies of Russia could camp and have room to spare. Perched upon the edge of the crater, at the opposite end from where we stood, was a small lookout-house, say three miles away. It assisted us, by comparison, to comprehend and appreciate the great depth of the basin. It looked like a tiny martin-box, clinging at the eaves of a cathedral. After some time spent in resting and looking and ciphering, we hurried on to the hotel. By the path— it is half a mile from the volcano house to the lookout house. After a hearty supper we waited until it was thoroughly dark, and then started to the crater. The first glance in that direction revealed a scene of wild beauty. There was a heavy fog over the crater, and it was splendidly illuminated by the glare from the fires below. The illumination was two miles wide and a mile high, perhaps. And if you ever, on a dark night, and at a distance, beheld the light from thirty or forty blocks of distant buildings all on fire at once, reflected strongly against overhanging clouds, you can form a fair idea of what this looked like. A colossal column of cloud towered to a great height in the air immediately above the crater, and the outer swell of every one of its vast folds was dyed with a rich crimson luster, which was subdued to a pale rose tint in the depression between. It glowed like a muffled torch, and stretched upward to a dizzy height toward the zenith. I thought it just possible that its like had not been seen since the children of Israel wandered on their long march through the desert so many centuries ago over a path illuminated by the mysterious Pillar of Fire. And I was sure that I now had a vivid conception of what the majestic Pillar of Fire was like, which almost amounted to a revelation arrived at the little thatched lookout-house, we rested our elbows on the railing in front, and looked abroad over the wide crater and down over the sheer precipice at the seething fires beneath us. The view was a startling improvement on my daylight experience. I turned to see the effect on the balance of the company and found the reddest-faced set of men I almost ever saw. In the strong light every countenance glowed like red-hot iron every shoulder was suffused with crimson and shaded rearward into dingy, shapeless obscurity. The place below looked like the infernal regions, and these men like half-cooled devils just come up on a furlough. I turned my eyes upon the volcano again. The cellar was tolerably well lighted up. For a mile and a half in front of us, and half a mile on either side, the floor of the abyss was magnificently illuminated. Beyond these limits, the mists hung down their gauzy curtains and cast a deceptive gloom over all that made the twinkling fires in the remote corners of the crater seem countless leagues removed, made them seem like the campfires of a great army far away. Here was room for the imagination to work. You could imagine those lights the width of a continent away and that hidden under the intervening darkness were hills and winding rivers and weary wastes of plain and desert, and even then the tremendous vista stretched on and on and on, to the fires and far beyond. You could not compass it. It was the idea of eternity made tangible, and the longest end of it made visible to the naked eye. The greater part of the vast floor of the desert under us was as black as ink, and apparently smooth and level, but over a mile square of it was ringed and streaked and striped with a thousand branching streams of liquid and gorgeously brilliant fire. It looked like a colossal railroad map of the state of Massachusetts done in a chain lightning on a midnight sky. Imagine it—imagine a coal-black sky shivered into a tangled network of angry fire. Here and there were gleaming holes a hundred feet in diameter, broken in the dark crust, and in them the melted lava, the color of a dazzling white just tinged with yellow, was boiling and surging furiously, and from these holes branched numberless bright torrents in many directions, like the spokes of a wheel, and kept a tolerably straight course for a while, and then swept round in huge rainbow curves, or made a long succession of sharp worm-fence angles, which looked precisely like the fiercest jagged lightning. These streams met other streams, and they mingled with and crossed and recrossed each other in every conceivable direction, like skate-tracks on a popular skating-ground. Sometimes streams twenty or thirty feet wide flowed from the holes to some distance without dividing, and through the opera-glasses we could see that they ran down small, steep hills and were genuine cataracts of fire, white at their source but soon cooling and turning to the richest red grained with alternate lines of black and gold every now and then masses of the dark crust broke away and floated slowly down these streams like rafts down a river occasionally the molten lava flowing under the superincumbent crust broke through split a dazzling streak from five hundred to a thousand feet long like a sudden flash of lightning and then acre after acre of the cold lava parted into fragments turned up edgewise like cakes of ice when a great river breaks up plunged downward and were swallowed in the crimson cauldron then the wide expanse of the thaw maintained a ruddy glow for a while but shortly cooled and became black and level again during a thaw every dismembered cake was marked by a glittering white border which was superbly shaded inward by aurora borealis rays which were a flaming yellow where they joined the white border and from thence toward their points tapered into glowing crimson then into a rich pale carmine and finally into a faint blush that held its own a moment and then dimmed and turned black some of the streams preferred to mingle together in a tangle of fantastic circles and then they looked something like the confusion of ropes one sees on a ship's deck when she has just taken in sail and dropped anchor, provided one can imagine those ropes on fire. Through the glasses, the little fountains scattered about looked very beautiful. They boiled, and coughed, and spluttered, and discharged sprays of stringy red fire, of about the consistency of mush, for instance from ten to fifteen feet into the air, along with a shower of brilliant white sparks, a quaint and unnatural mingling of gouts of blood and snowflakes. We had circles and serpents and streaks of lightning, all twined and wreathed and tied together, without a break throughout an area more than a mile square—that amount of ground was covered, though it was not strictly square—and it was with a feeling of placid exultation that we reflected that many years had elapsed since any visitor had seen such a splendid display—since any visitor had seen anything more than the now snubbed and insignificant north and south lakes in action. We had been reading old files of Hawaiian newspapers and the record-book at the Volcano House, and were posted. I could see the North Lake lying out on the black floor away off in the outer edge of our panorama, and knitted to it by a webwork of lava-streams. In its individual capacity it looked very little more respectable than a schoolhouse on fire. True, it was about nine hundred feet long, and two or three hundred wide, but then, under the present circumstances, it necessarily appeared rather insignificant, and besides, it was so distant from us i forgot to say that the noise made by the bubbling lava is not great heard as we heard it from our lofty perch it makes three distinct sounds a rushing a hissing and a coughing or puffing sound and if you stand on the brink and close your eyes it is no trick at all to imagine that you are sweeping down a river on a large low-pressure steamer and that you hear the hissing of the steam about her boilers The puffing from her escape pipes and the churning rush of the water abaft her wheels. The smell of sulfur is strong, but not unpleasant to a sinner. We left the lookout house at ten o'clock in a half-cooked condition, because of the heat from Pele's furnaces, and, wrapping up in blankets, for the night was cold, we returned to our hotel. End of chapter 74 This is Chapter 75 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 75. The next night was appointed for a visit to the bottom of the crater, for we desired to traverse its floor and see the North Lake of Fire, which lay two miles away, toward the further wall after dark half a dozen of us set out with lanterns and native guides and climbed down a crazy thousand-foot pathway in a crevice fractured in the crater wall and reached the bottom in safety the eruption of the previous evening had spent its force and the floor looked black and cold but when we ran out upon it we found it hot yet to the feet and it was likewise riven with crevices which revealed the underlying fires gleaming vindictively. A neighboring cauldron was threatening to overflow, and this added to the dubiousness of the situation. So the native guides refused to continue the venture, and then everybody deserted except a stranger named Marlette. He said he had been in the crater a dozen times in daylight, and believed he could find his way through it at night. He thought that a run of three hundred yards would carry us over the hottest part of the floor, and leave us our shoe soles. His pluck gave me backbone. We took one lantern and instructed the guide to hang the other to the roof of the lookout house to serve as a beacon for us in case we got lost. And then the party started back up the precipice, and Marlette and I made our run. We skipped over the hot floor and over the red crevices with brisk dispatch and reached the cold lava safe, but with pretty warm feet. Then we took things leisurely and comfortably, jumping tolerably wide and probably bottomless chasms, and threading our way through picturesque lava upheavals with considerable confidence. We got fairly away from the cauldrons of boiling fire. We seemed to be in a gloomy desert, and a suffocatingly dark one, surrounded by dim walls that seemed to tower to the sky. The only cheerful objects were the glinting stars high overhead. By and by Marlette shouted, "'Stop!' I never stopped quicker in my life. I asked what the matter was. He said we were out of the path. He said we must not try to go on till we found it again, for we were surrounded with beds of rotten lava, through which we could easily break and plunge down a thousand feet. I thought eight hundred would answer for me, and was about to say so when Marlette partly proved his statement by accidentally crushing through and disappearing to his armpits." He got out, and we hunted for the path with the lantern. He said there was only one path, and that it was but vaguely defined. We could not find it. The lava surface was all alike in the lantern light, but he was an ingenious man. He said it was not the lantern that had informed him that we were out of the path, but his feet. He had noticed a crisp grinding of the fine lava needles under his feet, and some instinct reminded him that in the path these were all worn away so he put the lantern behind him, and began to search with his boots instead of his eyes. It was good sagacity. The first time his foot touched the surface that did not grind under it, he announced that the trail was found again, and after that we kept up a sharp listening for the rasping sound, and it always warned us in time. It was a long tramp, but an exciting one. We reached the north lake between ten and eleven o'clock, and sat down on a huge overhanging lava shelf tired but satisfied. The spectacle presented was worth coming double the distance to see. Under us, and stretching away before us, was a heaving sea of molten fire of seemingly limitless extent. The glare from it was so blinding that it was some time before we could bear to look upon it steadily. It was like gazing at the sun at noonday, except that the glare was not quite so white. At unequal distances all around the shores of the lake were nearly white-hot chimneys or hollow drums of lava four or five feet high, and up through them were bursting gorgeous sprays of lava-gouts and gem-spangles—some white, some red, and some golden—a ceaseless bombardment, and one that fascinated the eye with its unapproachable splendor. The mere distant jets, sparkling up through an intervening gossamer veil of vapor, seemed miles away, and the further the curving ranks of fiery fountains receded, the more fairy-like and beautiful they appeared. Now and then the surging bosom of the lake, under our noses, would calm down ominously, and seem to be gathering strength for an enterprise. And then, all of a sudden, a red dome of lava of the bulk of an ordinary dwelling would heave itself aloft like an escaping balloon, then burst asunder, and out of its heart would flit a pale green film of vapor, and float upward and vanish in the darkness, a released soul soaring homeward from captivity with the damned, no doubt." The crashing plunge of the ruined dome into the lake again would send a world of seething billows lashing against the shores and shaking the foundations of our perch. By and by a loosened mass of the hanging shelf we sat on tumbled into the lake, jarring the surroundings like an earthquake, and delivering a suggestion that may have been intended for a hint, and may not. We did not wait to see. We got lost again on our way back, and were more than an hour hunting for the path. We were where we could see the beacon lantern at the lookout house at the time, but thought it was a star and paid no attention to it. We reached the hotel at two o'clock in the morning pretty well fagged out. Kilauea never overflows its vast crater, but bursts a passage for its lava through the mountainside when relief is necessary, and then the destruction is fearful about 1840 it rent its overburdened stomach, and sent a broad river of fire careening down to the sea, which swept away forests, huts, plantations, and everything else that lay in its path. The stream was five miles broad in places, and two hundred feet deep, and the distance it traveled was forty miles. It tore up and bore away acre-patches of land on its bosom like rafts, rocks trees and all intact at night the red glare was visible a hundred miles at sea and at a distance of forty miles fine print could be read at midnight the atmosphere was poisoned with sulphurous vapors and choked with falling ashes pumice stones and cinders countless columns of smoke rose up and blended together in a tumbled canopy that hid the heavens and glowed with a ruddy flush reflected from the fires below Here and there jets of lava sprung hundreds of feet into the air, and burst into rocket sprays that returned to earth in a crimson rain, and all the while the laboring mountain shook with nature's great palsy, and voiced its distress in moanings, and the muffled booming of subterranean thunders. Fishes were killed for twenty miles along the shore where the lava entered the sea. The earthquakes caused some loss of human life and a prodigious tidal wave swept inland, carrying everything before it and drowning a number of natives. The devastation consummated along the route traversed by the river of lava was complete and incalculable. Only a Pompeii and a Herculaneum were needed at the foot of Kilauea to make the story of the eruption immortal. End of chapter 75 This is Chapter 76 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 76. We rode horseback all around the island of Hawaii, the crooked road making the distance two hundred miles, and enjoyed the journey very much. We were more than a week making the trip, because our Kanaka horses, would not go by a house or a hut without stopping. Whip and spur could not alter their minds about it, and so we finally found that it economized time to let them have their way. Upon inquiry the mystery was explained. The natives are such thoroughgoing gossips that they never pass a house without stopping to swap news, and consequently their horses learn to regard that sort of thing as an essential part of the whole duty of man and his salvation not to be compassed without it. However, at a former crisis of my life I had once taken an aristocratic young lady out driving, behind a horse that had just retired from a long and honorable career as the moving impulse of a milk-wagon, and so this present experience awoke a reminiscent sadness in me, in place of the exasperation more natural to the occasion. I remembered how helpless I was that day, and how humiliated— how ashamed I was of having intimated to the girl that I had always owned the horse and was accustomed to grandeur, how hard I tried to appear easy and even vivacious under suffering that was consuming my vitals, how placidly and maliciously the girl smiled, and kept on smiling, while my hot blushes baked themselves into a permanent blood-pudding in my face How the horse ambled from one side of the street to the other and waited complacently before every third house two minutes and a quarter, while I belabored his back and reviled him in my heart, how I tried to keep him from turning corners and failed, how I moved heaven and earth to get him out of town and did not succeed, how he traversed the entire settlement and delivered imaginary milk at a hundred and sixty-two different domiciles, and how he finally brought up at a dairy depot, and refused to budge further, thus rounding and completing the revealment of what the plebeian service of his life had been, how in eloquent silence I walked the girl home, and how, when I took leave of her, her parting remarks scorched my soul, and appeared to blister me all over. She said that my horse was a fine, capable animal, and I must have taken great comfort in him in my time but that if I would take along some milk-tickets next time and appear to deliver them at the various halting-places, it might expedite his movements a little. There was a coolness between us after that. In one place in the island of Hawaii we saw a laced and ruffled cataract of limpid water leaping from a sheer precipice fifteen hundred feet high, but that sort of scenery finds its staunchest ally— in the arithmetic rather than in spectacular effect if one desires to be so stirred by a poem of nature wrought in the happily commingled graces of picturesque rocks glimpsed distances foliage color shifting lights and shadows and falling water that the tears almost come into his eyes so potent is the charm exerted he need not go away from america to enjoy such an experience The Rainbow Fall, in Watkins Glen, New York, on the Erie Railway, is an example. It would recede into pitiable insignificance if the callous tourist drew on arithmetic on it, but left to compete for the honors simply on scenic grace and beauty, the grand, the august, and the sublime being barred the contest, it could challenge the old world and the new to produce its peer." In one locality, on our journey, we saw some horses that had been born and reared on top of the mountains, above the range of running water, and consequently they had never drank that fluid in their lives, but had been always accustomed to quenching their thirst by eating dew-laden or shower-wetted leaves, and now it was destructively funny to see them sniff suspiciously at a pail of water, and then put in their noses and try to take a bite out of the fluid, as if it were a solid. Finding it liquid, they would snatch away their heads, and fall to trembling, snorting, and showing other evidences of fright. When they became convinced at last that the water was friendly and harmless, they thrust their noses up to their eyes, brought out a mouthful of water, and proceeded to chew it complacently. We saw a man coax, kick, and spur one of them five or ten minutes before he could make it cross a running stream. It spread its nostrils, distended its eyes, and trembled all over just as horses customarily do in the presence of a serpent, and for aught I know it thought the crawling stream was a serpent. In due course of time our journey came to an end at Kawehai, usually pronounced Tuahai, and before we find fault with this elaborate orthographical method of arriving at such an unostentatious result, let us lop off the ugh from our word though. I made this horseback trip on a mule." I paid ten dollars for him at Kau—Kau—added four to get him shod, rode him two hundred miles, and then sold him for fifteen dollars. I marked the circumstance with a white stone, in the absence of chalk, for I never saw a white stone that a body could mark anything with, though out of respect for the ancients I have tried it often enough, for up to that day and date it was the first strictly commercial transaction I had ever entered into, and come out— Winter, we returned to Honolulu, and from thence sailed to the island of Maui, and spent several weeks there very pleasantly. I still remember, with a sense of indolent luxury, a picnicking excursion up a romantic gorge there called the Iao Valley. The trail lay along the edge of a brawling stream in the bottom of the gorge. A shady route, for it was well-roofed with the verdant domes of forest-trees. Through openings in the foliage we glimpsed picturesque scenery that revealed ceaseless changes and new charms with every step of our progress. Perpendicular walls from one to three thousand feet high guarded the way, and were sumptuously plumed with varied foliage in places, and in places swathed in waving ferns. Passing shreds of cloud trailed their shadows across these shining fronts, mottling them with blots. Billowy masses of white vapor hid the turreted summits, and far above the vapor swelled a background of gleaming green crags and cones that came and went through the veiling mists, like islands drifting in a fog. Sometimes the cloudy curtain descended till half the cannon wall was hidden, then shredded gradually away till only airy glimpses of the ferny front appeared through it then swept aloft and left it glorified in the sun again now and then as our position changed rocky bastions swung out from the wall a mimic ruin of castellated ramparts and crumbling towers clothed with mosses and hung with garlands of swaying vines and as we moved on they swung back again and hid themselves once more in the foliage presently a verdure clad needle of stone a thousand feet high stepped out from behind a corner, and mounted guard over the mysteries of the valley. It seemed to me that if Captain Cook needed a monument, here was one ready-made. Therefore, why not put up his sign here, and sell out the venerable coconut stump? But the chief pride of Maui is her dead volcano of Haleakala, which means, translated, the House of the Sun. We climbed a thousand feet up the side of this isolated colossus one afternoon, then camped, and next day climbed the remaining nine thousand feet, and anchored on the summit, where we built a fire and froze and roasted by turns all night. With the first pallor of dawn we got up and saw things that were new to us. Mounted on a commanding pinnacle, we watched nature work her silent wonders. The sea was spread abroad on every hand, its tumbled surface seeming only wrinkled and dimpled in the distance A broad valley below appeared like an ample checkerboard, its velvety-green sugar plantations alternating with dun squares of barrenness, and groves of trees diminished to mossy tufts. Beyond the valley were mountains picturesquely grouped together, but bear in mind we fancied that we were looking up at these things, not down. We seemed to sit in the bottom of a symmetrical bowl ten thousand feet deep, with the valley, and the skirting sea lifted away into the sky above us. It was curious, and not only curious but aggravating, for it was having our trouble all for nothing to climb ten thousand feet toward heaven and then have to look up at our scenery. However, we had to be content with it and make the best of it, for all we could do we could not coax our landscape down out of the clouds. Formerly, when I had read an article in which Poe treated of this singular fraud, perpetrated upon the eye by isolated great altitudes, I had looked upon the matter as an invention of his own fancy. I have spoken of the outside view, but we had an inside one, too. That was the yawning dead crater, into which we now and then tumbled rocks, half as large as a barrel, from our perch, and saw them go careening down the almost perpendicular sides, bounding three hundred feet at a jump, kicking up cast clouds wherever they struck." diminishing to our view as they sped farther into distance, growing invisible, finally, and only betraying their course by faint little puffs of dust, and coming to a halt at last in the bottom of the abyss, two thousand five hundred feet down, from where they started. It was magnificent sport. We wore ourselves out at it. The crater of Vesuvius, as I have before remarked, is a modest pit about a thousand feet deep and three thousand in circumference, that of Kilauea is somewhat deeper and ten miles in circumference. But what are either of them compared to the vacant stomach of Haleakala? I will not offer any figures of my own, but give official ones, those of Commander Wilkes, U.S. Navy, who surveyed it and testifies that it is twenty seven miles in circumference. If it had a level bottom, it would make a fine site for a city like London. It must have afforded a spectacle worth contemplating in the old days, when its furnaces gave full rein to their anger. Presently vagrant white clouds came drifting along high over the sea and the valley. Then they came in couples and groups. Then, in imposing squadrons, gradually joining their forces, they banked themselves solidly together, a thousand feet under us, and totally shut out land and ocean. Not a vestige of anything was left in view, but just a little of the rim of the crater— circling away from the pinnacle whereon we sat, for a ghostly procession of wanderers from the filmy hosts without had drifted through a chasm in the crater wall, and filed round and round, and gathered and sunk and blended together till the abyss was stored to the brim with a fleecy fog. Thus banked, motion ceased, and silence reigned. Clear to the horizon, league on league, the snowy floor stretched without a break, not level, but in rounded folds, with shallow creases between, and with here and there stately piles of vapory architecture lifting themselves aloft out of the common plain, some near at hand, some in the middle distances, and others relieving the monotony of the remote solitudes. There was little conversation, for the impressive scene overawed speech— I felt like the last man, neglected of the judgment, and left pinnacled in mid-heaven a forgotten relic of a vanished world. While the hush yet brooded, the messengers of the coming resurrection appeared in the east. A growing warmth suffused the horizon, and soon the sun emerged and looked out over the cloud-waste, flinging bars of ruddy light across it, staining its folds and billow-caps with blushes, purpling the shaded troughs between and glorifying the massy vapor-palaces and cathedrals with a wasteful splendor of all blendings and combinations of rich coloring. It was the sublimest spectacle I ever witnessed, and I think the memory of it will remain with me always. End of chapter 76 Chapter 77 of Roughing It this is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Ruffing It by Mark Twain, Chapter 77. I stumbled upon one curious character in the island of Mani. He became a sore annoyance to me in the course of time. My first glimpse of him was in a sort of public room in the town of Lahaina he occupied a chair at the opposite side of the apartment and sat eyeing our party with interest for some minutes and listening as critically to what we were saying as if he fancied we were talking to him and expecting him to reply i thought it very sociable in a stranger presently in the course of conversation i made a statement bearing upon the subject under discussion and i made it with due modesty for there was nothing extraordinary about it, and it was only put forth in illustration of a point at issue. I had barely finished when this person spoke out with rapid utterance and feverish anxiety. "'Oh, that was certainly remarkable, after a fashion. But you ought to have seen my chimney. You ought to have seen my chimney, sir. Smoke! I wish I may hang uh, if—Mr. Jones, you remember that chimney! You must remember that chimney!' "'No, no, I I recollect now you weren't living on this side of the island, then, but I am telling you nothing but the truth, and I wish I may never draw another breath if that chimney didn't smoke so that the smoke actually got caked in it and I had to dig it out with a pickaxe. You may smile, gentlemen, but the High Sheriff's got a hunk of it which I dug out before his eyes, and so it's perfectly easy for you to go and examine for yourselves.' The interruption broke up the conversation, which had already begun to lag and we presently hired some natives and an outrigger canoe or two, and went out to overlook a grand surf-bathing contest. Two weeks after this, while talking in a company, I looked up and detected this same man boring through and through me with his intense eye, and noted again his twitching muscles and his feverish anxiety to speak. The moment I paused, he said— Beg your pardon, sir, beg your pardon, but it can only be considered remarkable when brought into strong outline by isolation. Sir, contrasted with a circumstance which occurred in my own experience, it instantly becomes commonplace. No, not that, for I will not speak so discourteously of any experience in the career of a stranger and a gentleman, but I am obliged to say that you could not, and you would not ever again refer to this tree as a large one if you could behold, as I have— the great yakmatak tree in the island of wanaska sea of kamchatka a tree sir not one inch less than four hundred and fifteen feet in solid diameter and i wish i may die in a minute if it isn't so oh you needn't look so questioning gentlemen here's old captain saltmarsh can say whether i know what i am talking about or not i showed him the tree captain saltmarsh come now catch your anchor lad you're heaving too taut You promised to show me that stunner, and I walked more than eleven mile with you through the cussedest jungle I ever see, hunting for it. But the tree you showed me finally weren't as big round as a beer cask, and you know that your own self, Marcus. Hear the man talk. Of course the tree was reduced that way, but didn't I explain it? Answer me, didn't I? Didn't I say I wished you could have seen it when I first saw it?' When you got up on your ear and called me names and said I had brought you eleven miles to look at a sapling, didn't I explain to you that all the whale ships in North Seas had been wooding off of it for more than twenty-seven years? And didn't you suppose the tree could last forever, confound it? I don't see why you want to keep back things that way, and try to injure a person that's never done you any harm. Somehow this man's presence made me uncomfortable, and I was glad when a native arrived at that moment to say that Makawa, the most companionable and luxurious among the rude war-chiefs of the islands, desired us to come over and help him enjoy a missionary whom he had found trespassing on his grounds. I think it was about ten days afterward that, as I finished a statement I was making for the instruction of a group of friends and acquaintances, and which made no pretense of being extraordinary, a familiar voice chimed instantly in on the heels of my last word, and said, but my dear sir there was nothing remarkable about that horse or the circumstance either nothing in the world i mean no sort of offence when i say it sir but you really do not know anything whatever about speed bless your heart if you could only have seen my mare Margareta, there was a beast there was lightning for you trot trot is no name for it she flew how she could whirl a buggy along "'I started her out, sir. Uh, Colonel Bilgewater, you recollect that animal perfectly well. I started her out about thirty or thirty-five yards ahead of the awfulest storm I ever saw in my life, and it chased us upwards of eighteen miles. It did, by the everlasting hills. And I'm telling you nothing but the unvarnished truth when I say that not one single drop of rain fell on me. Not a single drop, sir, and I swear to it. But my dog was a-swimming behind the wagon all the way.' For a week or two I stayed mostly within doors, for I seemed to meet this person everywhere, and he had become utterly hateful to me. But one evening I dropped in on Captain Perkins and his friends, and we had a sociable time. About ten o'clock I chanced to be talking about a merchant friend of mine, and without really intending it the remark slipped out that he was a little mean and parsimonious about paying his workmen. Instantly, through the steam of a hot whiskey punch, on the opposite side of the room, a remembered voice shot, and for a moment I trembled on the imminent verge of profanity. "'Oh, my dear sir, really you expose yourself when you parade that as a surprising circumstance. Bless your heart and hide, you are ignorant of the very A-B-C of meanness. Ignorant as the unborn babe. Ignorant as unborn twins.' you don't know anything about it. It is pitiable to see you, sir, a well-spoken and prepossessing stranger, making such an enormous pow-wow here, about a subject concerning which your ignorance is perfectly humiliating. Look me in the eye, if you please. Look me in the eye. John James Godfrey was the son of poor but honest parents in the state of Mississippi, boyhood friend of mine, bosom comrade in later years. Heaven rest his noble spirit, he is gone from us now.' John James Godfrey was hired by the Hay Blossom Mining Company of California to do some blasting for them—the Incorporated Company of Mean Men, the boys used to call it. Well, one day he drilled a hole about four feet deep and put in an awful blast of powder, and was standing over it ramming it down with an iron crowbar about nine feet long, when the cussed thing struck a spark and fired the powder, and scat! Away John Godfrey whizzed like a skyrocket—him and his crowbar— Well, sir, he kept on going up in the air higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a boy, and he kept going on up higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a doll, and he kept on going up higher and higher till he didn't look any bigger than a little small bee, and then he went out of sight. Presently he came in sight again looking like a little small bee, and he came along down further and further till he looked as big as a doll again, and down further and further till he was as big as a boy again, and further and further till he was a full-sized man once more, and then him and his crowbar came a-whizzin' down and lit right exactly in the same old tracks, and went to rammin' down and rammin' down and ramming down again, just the same as if nothing had happened. Now, do you know that poor cuss war not gone only sixteen minutes, and yet that incorporated company of mean men docked him for the lost time?' I said I had the headache, and so excused myself and went home, and on my diary I entered another night spoiled by this offensive loafer, and a fervent curse was set down with it to keep the item company, and the very next day I packed up, out of all patience, and left the island. Almost from the very beginning I regarded that man as a liar. The line of points represents an interval of years at the end of which time the opinion hazarded in that last sentence came to be gratifyingly and remarkably endorsed, and by wholly disinterested persons. The man, Marcus, was found one morning hanging to a beam of his own bedroom, the doors and windows securely fastened on the inside, dead, and on his breast was pinned a paper in his own handwriting begging his friends to suspect no innocent person of having anything to do with his death for that it was the work of his own hands entirely. Yet the jury brought in the astounding verdict that deceased came to his death by the hands of some person or persons unknown. They explained that the perfectly undeviating consistency of Marcus's character for thirty years towered aloft as colossal and indestructible testimony that whatever statement he chose to make was entitled to instant and unquestioning acceptance— as a lie. And they furthermore stated their belief that he was not dead, and instanced the strong circumstantial evidence of his own word that he was dead, and beseeched the coroner to delay the funeral as long as possible, which was done. And so, in the tropical climate of Lahaina, the coffin stood open for seven days, and then even the loyal jury gave him up. But they sat on him again and changed their verdict to suicide induced by mental aberration, because, they said, with penetration, he said he was dead, and he was dead, and would he have told the truth if he had been in his right mind? No, sir. End of chapter 77 This is chapter 78 of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain Chapter 78 After half a year's luxurious vagrancy in the islands, I took shipping in a sailing vessel, and regretfully returned to San Francisco. A voyage in every way delightful, but without an incident, unless lying two long weeks in a dead calm eighteen hundred miles from the nearest land may rank as an incident schools of whales grew so tame that day after day they played about the ship among the porpoises and the sharks without the least apparent fear of us and we pelted them with empty bottles for lack of better sport Twenty-four hours afterward these bottles would be still lying on the glassy water under our noses, showing that the ship had not moved out of her place in all that time. The calm was absolutely breathless, and the surface of the sea absolutely without a wrinkle. For a whole day and part of a night we lay so close to another ship that had drifted to our vicinity— that we carried on conversations with her passengers introduced each other by name and became pretty intimately acquainted with people we had never heard of before and have never heard of since this was the only vessel we saw during the whole lonely voyage we had fifteen passengers and to show how hard pressed they were at last for occupation and amusement i will mention that the gentlemen gave a good part of their time every day during the calm to trying to sit on an empty champagne bottle lying on its side, and thread a needle without touching their heels to the deck, or falling over. And the ladies sat in the shade of the mainsail, and watched the enterprise with absorbing interest. We were at sea five Sundays, and yet, but for the almanac, we never would have known but that all the other days were Sundays too.' I was home again in San Francisco without means and without employment. I tortured my brain for a saving scheme of some kind, and at last a public lecture occurred to me. I sat down and wrote one in a fever of hopeful anticipation. I showed it to several friends, but they all shook their heads. They said nobody would come to hear me. I would make a humiliating failure of it. They said that as I had never spoken in public I would break down in the delivery, anyhow. I was disconsolate now. But at last an editor slapped me on the back and told me to— "'Go ahead,' he said. "'Take the largest house in town, and charge a dollar a ticket.' The audacity of the proposition was charming. It seemed fraught with practical worldly wisdom, however. The proprietor of the several theaters endorsed the advice— and said I might have his handsome new opera house at half price—fifty dollars. In sheer desperation I took it, on credit, for sufficient reasons. In three days I did a hundred and fifty dollars' worth of printing and advertising, and was the most distressed and frightened creature on the Pacific coast. I could not sleep. Who could, under such circumstances?" For other people there was facetiousness in the last line of my posters, but to me it was plaintive with a pang when I wrote it. Doors open at seven and a half. The trouble will begin at eight. That line has done good service since. Showmen have borrowed it frequently. I have even seen it appended to a newspaper advertisement reminding school pupils in vacation what time next term would begin.' As those three days of suspense dragged by, I grew more and more unhappy. I had sold two hundred tickets among my personal friends, but I feared they might not come. My lecture, which had seemed humorous to me at first, grew steadily more and more dreary, till not a vestige of fun seemed left, and I grieved that I could not bring a coffin on the stage and turn the thing into a funeral. I was so panic stricken at last. But I went to three old friends, giants in stature, cordial by nature, and stormy-voiced, and said, "'This thing is going to be a failure. The jokes in it are so dim that nobody will ever see them. I would like to have you sit in the parquet and help me through.' Well, they said they would. Then I went to the wife of a popular citizen and said that, If she was willing to do me a very great kindness, I would be glad if she and her husband would sit prominently in the left-hand stage box, where the whole house could see them. I explained that I should need help, and would turn toward her and smile as a signal when I had been delivered of an obscure joke. And then, I added, don't wait to investigate, but respond. She promised. Down the street I met a man I never had seen before. He had been drinking, and was beaming with smiles and good nature. He said, "'My name's Sawyer. You don't know me, but that don't matter. I haven't got a cent, but if you knew how bad I wanted to laugh, you'd give me a ticket. Come now, what do you say?' "'Is your laugh hung on a hair-trigger? That is, is it critical, or can you get it off easy?' My drawling infirmity of speech so affected him that he laughed a specimen or two that struck me as being about the article I wanted, and I gave him a ticket, and appointed him to sit in the second circle in the center and be responsible for that division of the house. I gave him minute instructions about how to detect indistinct jokes, and then went away and left him chuckling placidly over the novelty of the idea. I ate nothing on the last of the three eventful days, I only suffered. I had advertised that on this third day the box office would be opened for the sale of reserved seats. I crept down to the theater at four in the afternoon to see if any sales had been made. The ticket seller was gone. The box office was locked up. I had to swallow suddenly, or my heart would have got out. No sales, I said to myself. I might have known it. I thought of suicide— pretended illness, flight. I thought of these things in earnest, for I was very miserable and scared. But, of course, I had to drive them away, and prepare to meet my fate. I could not wait for half-past seven. I wanted to face the horror, and end it, the feeling of many a man doomed to hang, no doubt. I went down back streets at six o'clock, and entered the theatre by the back door. I stumbled my way in the dark among the ranks of canvas scenery, and stood on the stage. The house was gloomy and silent, and its emptiness depressing. I went into the dark among the scenes again, and for an hour and a half gave myself up to the horrors, wholly unconscious of everything else. Then I heard a murmur—it rose higher and higher—and ended in a crash, mingled with cheers. It made my hair raise—it was so close to me and so loud. There was a pause and then another presently came a third and before i well knew what i was about i was in the middle of the stage staring at a sea of faces bewildered by the fierce glare of the lights and quaking in every limb with a terror that seemed like to take my life away the house was full aisles and all the tumult in my heart and brain and legs continued a full minute before i could gain any command over myself then I recognized the charity and the friendliness in the faces before me, and little by little my fright melted away, and I began to talk. Within three or four minutes I was comfortable, and even content. My three chief allies with three auxiliaries were on hand in the parquet, all sitting together, all armed with bludgeons, and all ready to make an onslaught upon the feeblest joke that might show its head. And whenever a joke did fall— Their bludgeons came down, and their faces seemed to split from ear to ear. Sawyer, whose hearty countenance was seen looming redly in the centre of the second circle, took it up, and the house was carried handsomely. Inferior jokes never fared so royally before. Presently I delivered a bit of serious matter with impressive unction, it was my pet, and the audience listened with an absorbed hush that gratified me more than any applause and, as I dropped the last word of the clause, I happened to turn and catch Mrs. Mm -hmm. Her intent and waiting eye. My conversation with her flashed upon me, and in spite of all I could do I smiled. She took it for the signal, and promptly delivered a mellow laugh that touched off the whole audience, and the explosion that followed was the triumph of the evening. I thought that that honest man Sawyer would choke himself, and as for the bludgeons, They performed like pile-drivers, but my poor little morsel of pathos was ruined. It was taken in good faith as an intentional joke, and the prize won of the entertainment, and I wisely let it go at that. All the papers were kind in the morning. My appetite returned. I had an abundance of money. All's well that ends well. End of chapter 78 This is Chapter Seventy Nine of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain, Chapter Seventy Nine. I launched out as a lecturer now with great boldness. I had the field all to myself, for public lectures were almost an unknown commodity in the Pacific market they are not so rare now i suppose i took an old personal friend along to play agent for me and for two or three weeks we roamed through nevada and california and had a very cheerful time of it two days before i lectured in virginia city two stage-coaches were robbed within two miles of the town the daring act was committed just at dawn by six masked men who sprang up alongside the coaches presented revolvers at the heads of the drivers and passengers and commanded a general dismount everybody climbed down and the robbers took their watches and every cent they had then they took gunpowder and blew up the express specie boxes and got their contents the leader of the robbers was a small quick-spoken man and the fame of his vigorous manner and his intrepidity was in everybody's mouth when we arrived. The night after instructing Virginia, I walked over the desolate divide and down to Gold Hill, and lectured there. The lecture done, I stopped to talk with a friend, and did not start back till eleven. The divide was high unoccupied ground between the towns, the scene of twenty midnight murders and a hundred robberies. As we climbed up and stepped out on this eminence, the gold-hill lights dropped out of sight at our backs, and the night closed down gloomy and dismal. The sharp winds swept the place, too, and chilled our perspiring bodies through. "'I tell you, I don't like this place at night,' said Mike, the agent. "'Well, don't speak so loud,' I said. "'You needn't remind anybody that we are here.' Just then a dim figure approached me from the direction of Virginia—a man, evidently. He came straight at me, and I stepped aside to let him pass. He stepped in the way and confronted me again. Then I saw that he had a mask on and was holding something in my face. I heard a click-click and recognized a revolver in the dim outline. I pushed the barrel aside with my hand and said, "'Don't!' He ejaculated sharply. "'Your watch! Your money!' I said, "'You can have them with pleasure, but take the pistol away from my face, please. It makes me shiver.' No remarks. Hand out your money. Certainly. I— Put up your hands. Don't you go for a weapon. Put them up higher. I held them above my head. A pause. Then,
1: Are you going to hand
0: out your money or not? I dropped my hands to my pockets and said, Certainly. I— Put up your hands. Do you want your head blown off? Higher. I put them above my head again. Another pause. Are you going to hand out your money or not? Uh, Ah, again? "'Put up your hands! "'By George, you want the head shot off you awful bad!' "'Well, friend, I'm trying my best to please you. "'You tell me to give up my money, "'and when I reach for it, you tell me to put up my hands. "'If you would only—' "'Oh, now don't! "'All six of you at (sighs) me—' "'That other man will get away while—' "'Now, please, take some of those revolvers out of my face. "'Do, if you please. "'Every time one of them clicks, my liver comes up into my throat.' if you have a mother any of you or if any of you have ever had a mother or a grandmother or a cheese it will you give up your money or have we got to there there none of that put up your hands gentlemen i know you are gentlemen by your silence if you want to be facetious young man there are times and places more fitting this is serious business you prick the marrow of my opinion the funerals i have attended in my time were comedies compared to it now i think curse your palaver your money your money your money hold put up your hands gentlemen listen to reason you see how i am situated now don't put those pistols so close i smell the powder you see how i am situated if i had four hands so that i could hold up two and throttle him gag him kill him gentlemen don't "'Nobody's watching the other fellow. Why don't some of you—ouch! Take it away, please! "'Gentlemen, you see that I've got to hold up my hands, and so I can't take out my money. "'But if you'll be so kind as to take it out for me, I will do as much for you some—' "'Search him, Beauregard, and stop his jaw with a bullet quick if he wags it again. "'Help, Beauregard! Stonewall!'' Then three of them, with a small spry leader, adjourned to Mike and fell to searching him. I was so excited that my lawless fancy tortured me to ask my two men all manner of facetious questions about their rebel brother-generals of the South, but, considering the order they had received, it was but common prudence to keep still. When everything had been taken from me, watch, money, and a multitude of trifles of small value, I supposed I was free, and forthwith put my cold hands into my empty pockets and began an inoffensive jig to warm my feet and stir up some latent courage— but instantly all pistols were at my head and the order came again they stood mike up alongside of me with strict orders to keep his hands above his head too and then the chief highwayman said beauregard hide behind that boulder phil sheridan you hide behind that other one stonewall jackson put yourself behind that sage-bush there keep your pistols bearing on these fellows and if they take down their hands within ten minutes or move a single peg let em have it Then three disappeared in the gloom toward the several ambushes, and the other three disappeared down the road toward Virginia. It was depressingly still and miserably cold. Now this whole thing was a practical joke, and the robbers were personal friends of ours in disguise, and twenty more lay hidden within ten feet of us during the whole operation listening. Mike knew all of this, and was in the joke, but I suspected nothing of it to me it was most uncomfortably genuine. When we had stood there in the middle of the road five minutes, like a couple of idiots, with our hands aloft, freezing to death by inches, Mike's interest in the joke began to wane. He said, "'The time's up now, ain't it?' "'No, you keep still. Do you want to take any chances with these bloody savages?' Presently Mike said, "'Now the time's up anyway. I'm freezing.' "'Well, freeze. Better freeze than carry your brains home in a basket.' Maybe the time is up, but how do we know? Got no watch to tell by. I mean to give them good measure. I calculate to stand here fifteen minutes or die. Don't you move. So, without knowing it, I was making one joker very sick of his contract. When we took our arms down at last, they were aching with cold and fatigue, and when we went sneaking off, the dread I was in, that the time might not yet be up, and that we would feel bullets in a moment— was not sufficient to draw all my attention from the misery that racked my stiffened body. The joke of these highwayman friends of ours was mainly a joke upon themselves, for they had waited for me on the cold hilltop two full hours before I came, and there was very little fun in that. They were so chilled that it took them a couple of weeks to get warm again. Moreover, I never had a thought that they would kill me to get money which— it was so perfectly easy to get without any such folly, and so they did not really frighten me bad enough to make their enjoyment worth the trouble they had taken. I was only afraid that their weapons would go off accidentally. Their very numbers inspired me with confidence that no blood would be intentionally spilled. They were not smart. They ought to have sent only one highwayman, with a double-barreled shotgun, if they desired to see the author of this volume climb a tree. However, I suppose that in the long run I got the largest share of the joke at last, and in a shape not foreseen by the highwaymen, for the chilly exposure on the Divide, while I was in a perspiration, gave me a cold which developed itself into a troublesome disease and kept my hands idle some three months, besides costing me quite a sum in doctor's bills. Since then I play no practical jokes on people, and generally lose my temper when one is played upon me when i returned to san francisco i projected a pleasure journey to japan and thence westward around the world but a desire to see home again changed my mind and i took a berth in the steamship bade good-bye to the friendliest and the livest heartiest community on our continent and came by the way of the isthmus to new york a trip that was not much of a picnic excursion for the cholera broke out among us on the passage, and we buried two or three bodies at sea every day. I found home a dreary place after my long absence, for half the children I had known were now wearing whiskers or waterfalls, and few of the grown people I had been acquainted with remained at their hearthstones prosperous and happy. Some of them had wandered to other scenes, some were in jail, and the rest had been hanged. These changes touched me deeply." AND I WENT AWAY AND JOINED THE FAMOUS QUAKER CITY EUROPEAN EXCURSION, AND CARRIED MY TEARS TO FOREIGN LANDS. THUS, AFTER SEVEN YEARS OF vicissitudes, ENDED A PLEASURE TRIP TO THE SILVER MINES OF NEVADA, WHICH HAD ORIGINALLY BEEN INTENDED TO OCCUPY ONLY THREE MONTHS. HOWEVER, I USUALLY MISS MY CALCULATIONS FURTHER THAN THAT. MORAL. IF THE READER THINKS HE IS DONE NOW, AND THAT THIS BOOK HAS NO MORAL TO IT, HE IS IN ERROR the moral of it is this if you are of any account stay at home and make your way by faithful diligence but if you are no account go away from home and then you will have to work whether you want to or not thus you become a blessing to your friends by ceasing to be a nuisance to them if the people you go among suffer by the operation the end End of chapter 79. This is Appendix A of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Appendix A Brief Sketch of Mormon History mormonism is only about forty years old but its career has been full of stir and adventure from the beginning and it is likely to remain so to the end its adherents have been hunted and hounded from one end of the country to the other and the result is that for years they have hated all gentiles indiscriminately and with all their might joseph smith the finder of the book of mormon and founder of the religion was driven from state to state with his mysterious copper plates and the miraculous stones he read their inscriptions with. Finally he instituted his church, in Ohio, and Brigham Young joined it. The neighbors began to persecute, and apostasy commenced. Brigham held to the faith and worked hard. He arrested desertion. He did more. He added converts in the midst of the trouble. He rose in favor and importance with the brethren he was made one of the twelve apostles of the church he shortly fought his way to a higher post and more powerful president of the twelve the neighbors rose up and drove the mormons out of ohio and they settled in missouri brigham went with them the missourians drove them out and they retreated to nauview illinois they prospered there and built a temple which made some pretensions to architectural grace and achieved some celebrity in a section of country where a brick courthouse, with a tin dome and a cupola on it, was contemplated with reverential awe. But the Mormons were badgered and harried again by their neighbors. All the proclamations Joseph Smith could issue denouncing polygamy and repudiating it as utterly anti-Mormon were of no avail. The people of the neighborhood, on both sides of the Mississippi, claimed that polygamy was practiced by the Mormons, and not only polygamy, but a little of everything that was bad." brigham returned from a mission to england where he had established a mormon newspaper and he brought back with him several hundred converts to his preaching his influence among the brethren augmented with every move he made finally nauvoo was invaded by the missouri and illinois gentiles and joseph smith killed a mormon named ridgden assumed the presidency of the mormon church and government in smith's place and even tried his hand at a prophecy or two but a greater than he was at hand brigham seized the advantage of the hour and without other authority than superior brain and nerve and will hurled ridgerton from his high place and occupied it himself he did more he launched an elaborate curse at Ridgden and his disciples and he pronounced Ridgden's prophecies emanations from the devil and ended by handing the false prophet over to the buffetings of satan for a thousand years probably the longest term ever inflicted in illinois the people recognized their master They straightway elected Brigham Young president, by a prodigious majority, and have never faltered in their devotion to him from that day to this. Brigham had forecast a quality which no other prominent Mormon has probably ever possessed. He recognized that it was better to move to the wilderness than be moved. By his command the people gathered together their meagre effects turned their backs upon their homes and their faces toward the wilderness, and on a bitter night in February, filed in sorrowful procession across the frozen Mississippi, lighted on their way by the glare of their burning temple, whose sacred furniture their own hands had fired. They camped several days afterward on the western verge of Iowa, and poverty, want, hunger, cold, sickness, grief, and persecution did their work, and many succumbed and died—martyrs, fair and true, whatever else they might have been. Two years the remnant remained there, while Brigham and a small party crossed the country and founded Great Salt Lake City, purposely choosing a land which was outside the ownership and jurisdiction of the hated American nation. Note that. This was in 1847. Brigham moved his people there, and got them settled just in time to see disaster fall again— for the war closed and mexico ceded brigham's refuge to the enemy the united states in eighteen forty nine the mormons organized a free and independent government and erected the state of desiree with brigham and young as its head but the very next year congress deliberately snubbed it and created the territory of utah out of the same accumulation of mountains sagebrush alkali and general desolation but made brigham governor of it Then, for years, the enormous migration across the plains to California poured through the land of the Mormons, and yet the Church remained staunch and true to its Lord and Master. Neither hunger, thirst, poverty, grief, hatred, contempt, nor persecution could drive the Mormons from their faith or their allegiance, and even the thirst for gold, which gleaned the flower of the youth and strength of many nations, was not able to entice them. That was the final test. An experiment that could survive that was an experiment with some substance to it somewhere. Great Salt Lake City throve, finally, and so did Utah. One of the last things which Brigham Young had done before leaving Iowa was to appear in the pulpit dressed to personate the worshipped and lamented Prophet Smith, and confer the prophetic succession with all its dignities, emoluments, and authorities upon President Brigham Young." The people accepted the pious fraud with the maddest enthusiasm, and Brigham's power was sealed and secured for all time. Within five years afterward he openly added polygamy to the tenets of the church by authority of a revelation which he pretended had been received nine years before by Joseph Smith, albeit Joseph is amply on record as denouncing polygamy to the day of his death. Now was Brigham become a second Andrew Johnson in the small beginning and steady progress of his official grandeur. He had served successively as a disciple in the ranks, home missionary, foreign missionary, editor and publisher, apostle, president of the Board of Apostles, president of all Mormondom, civil and ecclesiastical, successor to the great Joseph by the will of heaven, prophet, seer, revelator, There was but one dignity higher which he could aspire to, and he reached out modestly, and took that. He proclaimed himself a god. He claims that he is to have a heaven of his own hereafter, and that he will be its god, and his wives and children its goddesses, princes and princesses. Into it all faithful Mormons will be admitted, with their families, and will take rank and consequence according to the number of their wives and children." If a disciple dies before he has had time to accumulate enough wives and children to enable him to be respectable in the next world, any friend can marry a few wives and raise a few children for him after he is dead, and they are duly credited to his account, and his heavenly status advanced accordingly. Let it be borne in mind that the majority of the Mormons have always been ignorant, simple, of an inferior order of intellect, unacquainted with the world and its ways and let it be borne in mind that the wives of these Mormons are necessarily after the same pattern, and their children likely to be fit representatives of such a conjunction. And then let it be remembered that for forty years these creatures have been driven, 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 relentlessly, and mobbed, beaten, and shot down, cursed, despised, expatriated, banished to a remote desert, whither they journeyed gaunt with famine and disease, disturbing the ancient solitudes with their lamentations, and marking the long way with graves of their dead, and all because they were simply trying to live and worship God in the way which they believed with all their hearts and souls to be the true one. Let all these things be borne in mind, and then it will not be hard to account for the deathless hatred which the Mormons bear our people and our government. That hatred has fed fat its ancient grudge ever since Mormon Utah developed into a self-supporting realm, and the church waxed rich and strong. Brigham, as territorial governor, made it plain that Mormondon was for the Mormons. The United States tried to rectify all that by appointing territorial officers from New England and other anti-Mormon localities, but Brigham prepared to make their entrance into his dominions difficult. Three thousand United States troops had to go across the plains and put these gentlemen in office— and after they were in office they were as helpless as so many stone images they made laws which nobody minded and which could not be executed the federal judges opened court and land filled with crime and violence and sat as holiday spectacles for insolent crowds to gape at for there was nothing to try nothing to do nothing on the dockets and if a gentile brought a suit the mormon jury would do just as it pleased about bringing in a verdict and when the judgment of the court was rendered, no Mormon cared for it, and no officer could execute it. Our presidents shipped one cargo of officials after another to Utah, but the result was always the same. They sat in a blight for a while, they fairly feasted on scowls and insults day by day, they saw every attempt to do their official duties find its reward in darker and darker looks, and in secret threats and warnings of a more and more dismal nature, and at last they either succumbed, and became despised tools and toys of the Mormons, or got scared and discomforted, beyond all endurance, and left the territory. If a brave officer kept on courageously till his pluck was proven, some pliant Buchanan or Pierce would remove him, and appoint a stick in his place. In 1857 General Harney came very near being appointed Governor of Utah, and so it came very near being Harney, Governor, and Cradlebow, Judge." two men who never had any idea of fear further than the sort of murky comprehension of it which they were enabled to gather from the dictionary. Simply, if for nothing else, for the variety they would have made in a rather monotonous history of Federal servility and helplessness, it is a pity they were not fated to hold office together in Utah. Up to the date of our visit to Utah such had been the territorial record. The territorial government established there had been a hopeless failure, and Brigham Young was the only real power in the land. He was an absolute monarch, a monarch who defied our president, a monarch who laughed at our armies when they camped about his capital, a monarch who received without emotion the news that the august Congress of the United States had enacted a solemn law against polygamy, and then went forth calmly. And married twenty five or thirty more wives. End of Appendix A. This is Appendix B of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Appendix B. The Mountain Meadows Massacre the persecutions which the mormons suffered so long and which they consider they still suffer in not being allowed to govern themselves they have endeavoured and are still endeavouring to repay the now almost forgotten mountain meadows massacre was their work it was very famous in its day the whole united states rang with its horrors a few items will refresh the reader's memory A great emigrant train from Missouri, and Arkansas passed through Salt Lake City, and a few disaffected Mormons joined it for the sake of the strong protection it afforded for their escape. In that matter lay sufficient cause for hot retaliation by the Mormon chiefs. Besides, these one hundred and forty-five or one hundred and fifty unsuspecting emigrants, being in a part from Arkansas, where a noted Mormon missionary had lately been killed, and in part from Missouri, A state remembered with execrations as a bitter persecutor of the saints, when they were few and poor and friendless, here were substantial additional grounds for lack of love for these wayfarers. And finally this train was rich, very rich, in cattle, horses, mules, and other property. And how could the Mormons consistently keep up their coveted resemblance to the Israelitish tribes, and not seize the spoil of an enemy, when the Lord had so manifestly delivered it into their hand?' wherefore according to mrs c v Waite's entertaining book the mormon prophet it transpired that a revelation from brigham young as great grand archie or god was dispatched to president j c haight bishop higby and j d lee adopted son of brigham commanding them to raise all the forces they could muster and trust follow those cursed gentiles so read the revelation attack them disguised as Indians, and with the arrows of the Almighty make a clean sweep of them, and leave none to tell the tale. And if they needed any assistance, they were commanded to hire the Indians as their allies, promising them a share of the booty. They were to be neither slothful nor negligent in their duty, and to be punctual in sending the teams back to him before winter set in, for this was the mandate of Almighty God. The command of the revelation was faithfully obeyed. A large party of Mormons, painted and tricked out as Indians, overtook the train of emigrant wagons some three hundred miles south of Salt Lake City, and made an attack. But the emigrants threw up earthworks, made fortresses of their wagons, and defended themselves gallantly and successfully for five days. Your Missouri or Arkansas gentleman is not much afraid of the sort of scurvy apologies for Indians which the southern part of Utah affords. He would stand up and fight five hundred of them." At the end of the five days the Mormons tried military strategy. They retired to the upper end of the meadows, resumed civilized apparel, washed off their paint, and then, heavily armed, drove down in wagons to the beleaguered emigrants, bearing a flag of truce. When the emigrants saw white men coming, they threw down their guns and welcomed them with cheer after cheer. And, all unconscious of the poetry of it, no doubt, they lifted a little child aloft, dressed in white, in answer to the flag of truce." The leaders of the timely White Deliverers were President Haight and Bishop John D. Lee of the Mormon Church. Mr. Cradlebaugh, who served a term as Federal Judge in Utah, and afterward was sent to Congress from Nevada, tells in a speech delivered in Congress how these leaders next proceeded. They professed to be on good terms with the Indians, and represented them as being very mad. They also proposed to intercede and settle the matter with the Indians. After several hours' parley, they, having, apparently, visited the Indians, gave the ultimatum of the savages, which was that the emigrants should march out of their camp, leaving everything behind them, even their guns. It was promised by the Mormon bishops that they would bring a force and guard the emigrants back to the settlements. The terms were agreed to, the emigrants being desirous of saving the lives of their families, the Mormons retired— and subsequently appeared with thirty or forty armed men. The emigrants were marched out, the women and children in front and the men behind, the Mormon guard being in the rear. When they had marched in this way about a mile, at a given signal the slaughter commenced. The men were almost all shot down at the first fire from the guard. Two only escaped, who fled to the desert, and were followed one hundred and fifty miles before they were overtaken and slaughtered. The women and children ran on, two or three hundred yards further, when they were overtaken, and, with the aid of the Indians, they were slaughtered. Seventeen individuals only, of all the immigrant party, were spared, and they were little children, the eldest of them being only seven years old. Thus, on the tenth day of September, 1857, was consummated one of the most cruel, cowardly, and bloody murders known in our history. The number of persons butchered by the Mormons on this occasion was one hundred and twenty. With unheard-of temerity, Judge Cradlebow opened his court, and proceeded to make Mormondom answer for the massacre. And what a spectacle it must have been to see this grim veteran, solitary, and alone in his pride and his pluck, glowering down on his Mormon jury and Mormon auditory, deriding them by turns, and by turns breathing threatenings and slaughter! An editorial in the territorial enterprise of that day says of him, and of the occasion, "'He spoke and acted with the fearlessness and resolution of a Jackson, but the jury failed to indict or even report on the charges, while threats of violence were heard in every quarter, and an attack on the U.S. troops intimated, if he persisted in his course. Finding that nothing could be done with the juries, they were discharged with a scathing rebuke from the judge.' and then, sitting as a committing magistrate, he commenced his task alone. He examined witnesses, made arrests in every quarter, and created a consternation in the camps of the saints greater than any they had ever witnessed before, since Mormondon was born. At last accounts, terrified elders and bishops were decamping to save their necks, and developments of the most startling character were being made— implicating the highest church dignitaries in the many murders and robberies committed upon the Gentiles during the past eight years. Had Harney been governor, Cradlebow would have been supported in his work, and the absolute proofs adduced by him of Mormon guilt in this massacre, and in a number of previous murders, would have conferred gratuitous coffins upon certain citizens, together with occasion to use them. But coming, was the Federal Governor, and he, under a curious pretense of impartiality, sought to screen the Mormons from the demands of justice. On one occasion he even went so far as to publish his protest against the use of the U.S. troops in aid of Cradlebow's proceedings. Mrs. C. V. Waite closes her interesting detail of the great massacre with the following remark, an accompanying summary of the testimony, and the summary is concise, accurate, and reliable." For the benefit of those who may still be disposed to doubt the guilt of Young and his Mormons in this transaction, the testimony is here collated and circumstances given which go not merely to implicate but to fasten conviction upon them by confirmation strong as proofs of Holy Writ. 1. The evidence of Mormons themselves engaged in the affair, as shown by the statements of Judge Cradlebaugh and Deputy U.S. Marshal Rogers. 2 the failure of Brigham Young to embody any account of it in his report as Superintendent of Indian Affairs, also his failure to make any allusion to it whatever from the pulpit until several years after the occurrence, three, the flight to the mountains of men high in authority in the Mormon Church and State when this affair was brought to the ordeal of a judicial investigation, four, the failure of the Desiree News, the Church organ, and the only paper then published in the territory, to notice the massacre until several months afterward, and then only to deny that Mormons were engaged in it. 5. The testimony of the children saved from the massacre. 6. The children and the property of the emigrants found in the possession of the Mormons, and that possession traced back to the very day after the massacre. 7. The statements of Indians in the neighborhood of the scene of the massacre. These statements are shown not only by Cradlebow and Rogers, but by a number of military officers, and by J. Forney, who was, in 1859, Superintendent of Indian Affairs for the Territory. To all these were such statements freely and frequently made by the Indians. 8. The testimony of R. P. Campbell, Captain Second Dragoons, who was sent in the spring of 1859 to Santa Clara to protect travelers on the road to California and to inquire into Indian depredations. End of Appendix B. This is Appendix C of Roughing It. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. Roughing It by Mark Twain. Appendix C. Concerning a frightful assassination that was never consummated. If ever there was a harmless man, it is Conrad Wigand, of Gold Hill, Nevada. If ever there was a gentle spirit that thought itself unfired gunpowder and latent ruin, it is Conrad Wigand. If ever there was an oyster that fancied itself a whale, or a jack-o'-lantern, confined to a swamp, that fancied itself a planet with a billion-mile orbit, or a summer zephyr that deemed itself a hurricane— it is Conrad Wigand. Therefore, what wonder is it that when he says a thing he thinks the world listens, that when he does a thing the world stands still to look, and that when he suffers there is a convulsion of nature. When I met Conrad he was superintendent of the Gold Hill Assay Office, and he was not only its superintendent but its entire force, and he was a street preacher too with a mongrel religion of his own invention, whereby he expected to regenerate the universe. This was years ago. Here, latterly, he has entered journalism, and his journalism is what it might be expected to be—colossal to ear, but pygmy to the eye. It is extravagant grandiloquence confined to a newspaper about the size of a double-letter sheet. He doubtless edits, sets the type, and prints his paper all alone but he delights to speak of the concern as if it occupies a block, and employs a thousand men. Something less than two years ago, Conrad assailed several people mercilessly in his little People's Tribune, and got himself into trouble. Straightway he airs the affair in the Territorial Enterprise, in a communication over his own signature. And I propose to reproduce it here, in all its native simplicity and more than human candor. Long as it is, it is well worth reading, for it is the richest specimen of journalistic literature the history of america can furnish perhaps from the territorial enterprise january 20, 1870. seeming plot for assassination miscarried to the editor of the enterprise months ago when Mr. Sutro incidentally exposed mining management on the Comstock, and among others, roused me to protest against its continuance, in great kindness you warned me that any attempt by publications, by public meetings, and by legislative action aimed at the correction of chronic mining evils in Story County must entail upon me a. business ruin, b. the burden of all its costs, c. personal violence, and if my purpose were persisted in, then d. assassination, and, after all, nothing would be effected. Your prophecy fulfilling. In large part, at least, your prophecies have been fulfilled, for a. assaying, which was well attended to in the Gold Hill Assay Office, of which I am superintendent, in consequence of my publication, has been taken elsewhere, so the president of one of the companies assures me. With no reason assigned, other work has been taken away." With but one or two important exceptions, our assay business now consists simply of the gleanings of the vicinity. b. Though my own personal donations to the People's Tribune Association have already exceeded $1,500, outside of our own numbers we have received, in money, less than $300 as contributions and subscriptions for the journal. c. On Thursday last, on the main street in Gold Hill, near noon, with neither warning nor cause assigned by a powerful blow i was fell to the ground and while down i was kicked by a man who it would seem had been led to believe that i had spoken derogatorily of him by whom he was so induced to believe i am as yet unable to say on saturday last i was again assailed and beaten by a man who first informed me why he did so and who persisted in making his assault even after the erroneous impression under which he also was at first laboring had been clearly and repeatedly pointed out this same man after failing through intimidation to elicit from me the names of our editorial contributors against giving which he knew me to be pledged beat himself weary upon me with a raw hide i not resisting And then paintingly threatened me with permanent disfiguring mayhem if ever again I should introduce his name into print. And who, but a few minutes before his attack upon me, assured me that the only reason I was permitted to reach home alive on Wednesday evening last, at which time the People's Tribune was issued, was that he deems me only half witted. And be it remembered, the very next morning I was knocked down and kicked by a man who seemed to be prepared for flight. He sees doom impending when will the circle join how long before the whole of your prophecy will be fulfilled i cannot say but under the shadow of so much fulfilment in so short a time and with such threats from a man who is one of the most prominent exponents of the san francisco mining ring staring me and this whole community defiantly in the face and pointing to a completion of your augury do you blame me for feeling that this communication is the last i shall ever write for the press especially when a sense alike of personal self-respect, of duty to this money-oppressed and fear-ridden community, and of American fealty to the spirit of true liberty all command me, and each more loudly than love of life itself, to declare the name of that prominent man to be John B. Winters, president of the Yellow Jacket Company, a political aspirant, and a military general.' the name of his partially duped accomplice and abettor in this last marvellous assault is no other than philip lynch editor and proprietor of the gold hill news despite the insult and wrong heaped upon me by john b winters on saturday afternoon only a glimpse of which i shall be able to afford your readers so much do i deplore clinching by publicity a serious mistake of any one man or woman committed under natural and not self-wrought passion in view of his great apparent excitement at the time and in view of the almost perfect privacy of the assault i am far from sure that i should not have given him space for repentance before exposing him were it not that he himself has so far exposed the matter as to make it the common talk of the town that he has horsewhipped me that fact having been made public all the facts in connection need to be also or silence on my part would seem more than singular and with many would be proof either that i was conscious of some unworthy aim in publishing the article or else that my non-combatant principles are but a convenient cloak alike of physical and moral cowardice i therefore shall try to present a graphic but truthful picture of this whole affair but shall forbear all comments presuming that the editors of our own journal if others do not will speak freely and fittingly upon this subject in our next number, whether I shall then be dead or living, for my death will not stop, though it may suspend the publication of the People's Tribune. The non-combatant sticks to principle, but takes along a friend or two of a conveniently different stripe. The Trap Set on saturday morning john b winters sent verbal word to the gold hill assay office that he desired to see me at the yellow jacket office though such a request struck me as decidedly cool in view of his own recent discourtesies to me there alike as a publisher and as a stockholder in the yellow jacket mine and though it seemed to me more like a summons than the courteous request by one gentleman to another for a favour hoping that some conference with Sharon looking to the betterment of mining matters in Nevada might arise from it, I felt strongly inclined to overlook what possibly was simply an oversight in courtesy. But as then it had only been two days since I had been bruised and beaten under a hasty and false apprehension of facts, my caution was somewhat aroused. Moreover, I remembered sensitively his contemptuousness of manner to me at my last interview in his office, i therefore felt it needful if i went at all to go accompanied by a friend whom he would not dare to treat with incivility and whose presence with me might secure exemption from insult accordingly i asked a neighbour to accompany me the trap almost detected although i was not then aware of this fact it would seem that previous to my request this same neighbour had heard dr zabriskie state publicly in a saloon that mr winters had told him he had decided either to kill or to horsewhip me and had not finally decided on which my neighbour therefore felt unwilling to go down with me until he had first called on mr winters alone he therefore paid him a visit from that interview he assured me that he gathered the impression that he did not believe i would have any difficulty with mr winters and that he, Winters, would call on me at four o'clock in my own office. My own precautions. As Sheriff Cummings was in Gold Hill that afternoon, and as I desired to converse with him about the previous assault, I invited him to my office, and he came. Although a half hour had passed beyond four o'clock, Mr. Winters had not called, and we both of us began preparing to go home. Just then Philip Lynch, publisher of the Gold Hill News, came in and said blandly and cheerily, as if bringing good news, "'Hello, John B. Winters wants to see you.' I replied, "'Indeed. Why, he sent me word that he would call on me here this afternoon at four o'clock.' "'Oh, well, it don't do to be too ceremonious just now. He's in my office, and, and that will do as well. Come on in. Winters wants to consult with you alone. He's got something to say to you.' though slightly uneasy at this change of program, yet believing that in an editor's house I ought to be safe, and anyhow that I would be within hail of the street, I hurriedly and but partially whispered my dim apprehensions to Mr. Cummings, and asked him if he would not keep near enough to hear my voice in case I should call. He consented to do so while waiting for some other parties, and to come in if he heard my voice or thought I had need of protection. On reaching the editorial part of the news office, which viewed from the street is dark, I did not see Mr. Winters, and again my misgivings arose. Had I paused long enough to consider the case, I should have invited Sheriff Cummings in, but as Lynch went downstairs he said, "'This way, Wagond. it's best to be private,' or some such remark. I do not desire to strain the reader's fancy hurtfully, and yet it would be a favour to me, if he would try to fancy this lamb in battle or the dueling ground or at the head of a vigilance committee mt i followed and without mr cummings and without arms which i never do or will carry unless as a soldier in war or unless i should yet come to feel i must fight a duel or to join an aid in the ranks of a necessary vigilance committee but by following i made a fatal mistake following was entering a trap, and whatever animal suffers itself to be caught should expect the common fate of a caged rat, as I fear events to come will prove. Traps commonly are not set for benevolence. His bodyguard is shut out. THE TRAP INSIDE I followed Lynch downstairs. At their foot a door to the left opened into a small room from that room another door opened into yet another room and once entered i found myself inveigled into what many will ever henceforth regard as a private subterranean gold hill den admirably adapted in proper hands to the purposes of murder raw or disguised for from it with both or even one door closed when too late i saw that i could not be heard by sheriff cummings and from it by violence and by force I was prevented from making a peaceable exit when i thought i saw the studious object of this consultation was no other than to compass my killing in the presence of philip lynch as a witness as soon as by insult a proverbially excitable man should be exasperated to the point of assailing mr winters so that mr lynch by his conscience and by his well-known tenderness of heart toward the rich and potent would be compelled to testify that he saw General John B. Winters kill Conrad Wagand in self-defense, but I am going too fast. OUR HOST Mr. Lynch was present during the most of the time—say, a little short of an hour—but three times he left the room. His testimony, therefore, would be available only as to the bulk of what transpired. On entering this carpeted den I was invited to a seat near one corner of the room. Mr. Lynch took a seat near the window. J. B. Winters sat, at first, near the door, and began his remarks essentially as follows. "'I have come here to exact of you a retraction, in black and white, of those damnably false charges which you have preferred against me in that infamous lying sheet of yours, and you must declare yourself their author, that you published them knowing them to be false, and that your motives were malicious.' "'Hold, Mr. Winters. Your language is insulting, and your demand an enormity. I trust I was not invited here either to be insulted or coerced. I supposed myself here by invitation of Mr. Lynch, at your request. Nor did I come here to insult you. I have already told you that I am here for a very different purpose. Yet your language has been offensive, and even now shows strong excitement.' If insult is repeated, I shall either leave the room or call in Sheriff Cummings, whom I just left standing and waiting for me outside the door. No, you won't, sir. You may just as well understand it at once as not. Here you are my man, and I'll tell you why. Months ago you put your property out of your hands, boasting that you did so, to escape losing it on prosecution for libel.' It is true that I did convert all my immovable property into personal property, such as I could trust safely to others, and chiefly to escape ruin through possible libel suits. Very good, sir. Having placed yourself beyond the pale of the law, may God help your soul if you don't, make precisely such a retraction as I have demanded. I've got you now, and by, before you can get out of this room, you've got to both write and sign— precisely the retraction i have demanded and before you go anyhow you (coughs) (coughs) low-lived lying (coughs) i'll teach you what personal responsibility is outside of the law and by (coughs) sheriff cummings and all the friends you've got in the world besides can't save you you (coughs) etc no sir i'm alone now and I am prepared to be shot down just here and now, rather than be vilified by you as I have been, and suffer you to escape me after publishing those charges, not only here where I am known and universally respected, but where I am not personally known and may be injured. I confess this speech, with its terrible and but too plainly implied threat of killing me, if I did not sign the paper he demanded,— terrified me, especially as I saw he was working himself up to the highest possible pitch of passion and instinct, told me that any reply other than the one seeming concession to his demands would only be fueled to a raging fire. So I replied, "'Well, if I've got to sign.' Then I paused some time. Resuming, I said, "'But, Mr. Winters, you are greatly excited. Besides, I see you are laboring under a total misapprehension.' It is your duty not to inflame, but to calm yourself. I am prepared to show you, if you will only point out the article that you allude to, that you regard as charges what no calm and logical mind has any right to regard as such. Show me the charges, and I will try, at all events, and if it becomes plain that no charges have been preferred, then plainly there can be nothing to retract, and no one could rightly urge you to demand a retraction.' You should be aware of making so serious a mistake, for, however honest a man may be, every one is liable to misapprehend. Besides, you assume that I am the author of some certain article which you have not pointed out. It is hasty to do so. He then pointed to some numbered paragraphs in a Tribune article, headed, What's the Matter with Yellow Jacket, saying, That's what I refer to. To gain time for general reflection and resolution, I took up the paper and looked it over for a while, he remaining silent and, as I hoped, cooling. I then resumed saying, As I supposed, I do not admit having written that article, nor have you any right to assume so important a point, and then base important action upon your assumption. You might deeply regret it afterwards. In my published Address to the People, I notified the world that no information as to the authorship of any article would be given without the consent of the writer. I therefore cannot honorably tell you who wrote that article, nor can you exact it. If you are not the author, then I do demand to know who is. I must decline to say. Then (coughs) by— I brand you as its author, and shall treat you accordingly. Passing that point, the most important misapprehension which I notice is— that you regard them as charges at all, when their context, both at their beginning and end, show they are not. These words introduce them. Such an investigation, just before indicated, we think might result in showing some of the following points. Then follow eleven specifications, and the succeeding paragraph shows that the suggested investigation might exonerate those who are generally believed guilty you see therefore the context proves they are not preferred as charges and this you seem to have overlooked while making those comments mr winters frequently interrupted me in such a way as to convince me that he was resolved not to consider candidly the thoughts contained in my words he insisted upon it that they were charges and by he would make me take them back as charges, and he referred the question to Philip Lynch, to whom I then appealed as a literary man, as a logician, and as an editor, calling his attention especially to the introductory paragraph just before quoted. He replied, "'If they are not charges, they certainly are insinuations,' whereupon Mr. Winters renewed his demands for retraction precisely such as he had before named, except that he would allow me to state who did write the article if i did not myself and this time shaking his fist in my face with more cursings and epithets when he threatened me with his clenched fist instinctively i tried to rise from my chair but winters then forcibly thrust me down as he did every other time at least seven or eight when under similar imminent danger of bruising by his fist or for aught i could know worse than that after the first stunning blow which he could easily and safely to himself have dealt me so long as he kept me down and stood over me. This fact it was, which more than anything else convinced me that by plan and plot I was purposely made powerless in Mr. Winter's hand, and that he did not mean to allow me that advantage of being afoot which he possessed. Moreover, I then became convinced that Philip Lynch, and for what reason I wondered, would do absolutely nothing to protect me in his own house i realized then the situation thoroughly i had found it equally vain to protest or argue and i would make no unmanly appeal for pity still less apologize yet my life had been by the plainest possible implication threatened i was a weak man i was unarmed i was helplessly down and winters was afoot and probably armed lynch was the only witness the statements demanded if given and not explained would utterly sink me in my own self-respect, in my family's eyes, and in the eyes of the community. On the other hand, should I give the author's name, how could I ever expect that confidence of the people, which I should no longer deserve, and how much dearer to me and to my family was my life than the life of the real author to his friends? Yet life seemed dear, and each minute that remained seemed precious, if not solemn, I sincerely trust that neither you nor any of your readers, and especially none with families, may ever be placed in such seeming direct proximity to death while obliged to decide the one question I was compelled to, viz., what should I do? I, a man of family, and not, as Mr. Winters is, alone. The reader is requested not to skip the following. M. T. STRATEGY AND MESMERISM To gain time for further reflection, and hoping that by a seeming acquiescence I might regain my personal liberty, at least till I could give an alarm, or take advantage of some momentary inadvertence of winter's, and then without a cowardly flight escape, I resolved to write a certain kind of retraction, but previously had inwardly decided, first, that I would studiously avoid every action which might be construed into the drawing of a weapon, even by a self-infuriated man no matter what amount of insult might be heaped upon me, for it seemed to me that this great excess of compound profanity, foulness, and epithet, must be more than a mere indulgence, and therefore must have some object. Surely in vain the net is spread in the sight of any bird. Therefore, as before, without thought, I thereafter by intent kept my hands away from my pockets, and generally in sight, and spread upon my knees. SECOND. I resolved to make no motion with my arms or hands which could possibly be construed into aggression. Third, I resolved completely to govern my outward manner and suppress indignation. To do this, I must govern my spirit. To do that, by force of imagination, I was obliged, like actors on the boards, to resolve myself into an unnatural mental state, and see all things through the eyes of an assumed character. Fourth, I resolved to try on Winters, silently and unconsciously, to himself, a mesmeric power which I possess over certain kinds of people, and which at times I have found to work even in the dark over the lower animals. Does any one smile at these last counts? God save you from ever being obliged to beat in a game of chess whose stake is your life, you having but four poor pawns and pieces, and your adversary with his full force unshorn but, if you are, provided you have any strength with breadth of will, do not despair. Though mesmeric power may not save you, it may help you. Try it at all events. In this instance I was conscious of power coming into me, and, by a law of nature, I know Winters was correspondingly weakened. If I could have gained more time, I am sure he would not even have struck me. It takes time both to form such resolutions and to recite them, That time, however, I gained while thinking of my retraction, which I first wrote in pencil, altering it from time to time till I got it to suit me, my aim being to make it look like a concession to demands, while in fact it should tersely speak the truth into Mr. Winter's mind. When it was finished, I copied it in ink, and if correctly copied from my first draft, it should read as follows. In copying, I do not think I made any material change. COPY To Philip Lynch, editor of the Gold Hill News, I learn that General John B. Winters believes the following, pasted on, clipping from the People's Tribune of January, to contain distinct charges of mine against him personally, and that as such he desires me to retract them unqualifiedly. In compliance with his request, permit me to say that "'Although Mr. Winters and I see this matter differently, "'in view of his strong feelings in the premises, "'I hereby declare that I do not know those charges, "'if such they are, to be true, "'and I hope that a critical examination "'would altogether disprove them. "'Conrad Wigand, Gold Hill, January 15, 1870. "'I then read what I had written "'and handed it to Mr. Lynch, "'whereupon Mr. Winters said, "'That's not satisfactory, and it won't do.' And then, addressing himself to Mr. Lynch, he further said, "'How does it strike you?' "'Well, I confess I don't see that it retracts anything.' "'Nor do I,' said Winters. "'In fact, I regard it as adding insult to injury. Mr. Wygand, you've got to do better than that. You are not the man who can pull wool over my eyes.' "'That, sir, is the only retraction I can write.' "'No, it isn't, sir. And if you so much as say so again, you do it at your peril.' for I'll thrash you to within an inch of your life, and by grrr, sir, I don't pledge myself to spare you even that inch either. I want you to understand I have asked you for a very different paper, and that paper you've got to sign. Mr. Winters, I assure you that I do not wish to irritate you, but at the same time it is utterly impossible for me to write any other paper than that which I have written. If you are resolved to compel me to sign something—' Philip Lynch's hand must write at your dictation, and, if when written I can sign it, I will do so. But such a document as you say you must have from me, I never can sign. I mean what I say. Well, sir, what's to be done must be done quickly, for I've been here long enough already. I'll put the thing in another shape, and then, pointing to the paper, don't you know those charges to be false?' "'I do not.' "'Do you know them to be true?' of my own personal knowledge I do not. Then why did you print them? Because, rightly considered in their connection, they are not charges, but pertinent and useful suggestions in answer to the queries of a correspondent who stated facts which are inexplicable. Don't you know that I know they are false? If you do, the proper course is simply to deny them, and court an investigation." "'And do you claim the right to make me come out and deny anything you may choose to write and print?' To that question I think I made no reply, and he then further said, "'Come now, we've talked about the matter long enough. I want your final answer. Did you write that article or not?' "'I cannot in honour tell you who wrote it. Did you not see it before it was printed?' "'Most certainly, sir. And did you deem it a fit thing to publish?' Most assuredly, sir, or I would never have consented to its appearance. Of its authorship I can say nothing whatever, but for its publication I assume full soul and personal responsibility. And do you then retract it or not? Mr. Winters, if my refusal to sign such a paper as you have demanded must entail upon me all that your language in this room fairly implies, then I ask a few minutes for prayer. Prayer? you this is not your hour for prayer your time to pray was when you were writing those <coughs> lying charges will you sign or not you already have my answer what do you still refuse i do sir take that then and to my amazement and inexpressible relief he drew only a rawhide instead of what i expected a bludgeon or pistol with it as he spoke he struck at my left ear downward as if to tear it off, and afterwards on the side of the head. As he moved away, to get a better chance for a more effective shot, for the first time I gained a chance under peril to rise, and I did so pitying him from the very bottom of my soul, to think that one so naturally capable of true dignity, power, and nobility could, by the temptations of this State, and by unfortunate associations and aspirations, be so deeply debased as to find in such brutality anything, which he could call satisfaction. But the great hope for us all is in progress and growth, and Mr. B. Winters, I trust, will yet be able to comprehend my feelings. He continued to beat me with all his great force until absolutely weary, exhausted, and panting for breath. I still adhered to my purpose of non-aggressive defense, and made no other use of my arms than to defend my head and face from further disfigurement. The mere pain arising from the blows he inflicted upon my person was of course transient, and my clothing to some extent deadened its severity, as it now hides all remaining traces. When I supposed he was through, taking the butt-end of his weapon and shaking it in my face, he warned me, if I correctly understood him, of more yet to come, and furthermore said, if ever I again dared introduce his name to print, in either my own or any other public journal, he would cut off my left ear and I do not think he was jesting, and send me home to my family a visibly mutilated man, to be a standing warning to all low-lived puppies who seek to blackmail gentlemen and to injure their good names. And when he did so operate, he informed me that his implement would not be a whip, but a knife. When he had said this, unaccompanied by Mr. Lynch, as I remember it, he left the room, for I sat down by Mr. Lynch, exclaiming, "'The man is mad,' he is utterly mad. This step is his ruin. It is a mistake. It would be ungenerous in me, despite of all the ill-usage I have here received, to expose him, at least until he has had an opportunity to reflect upon the matter. I shall be in no haste. "'Winters is very mad just now,' replied Mr. Lynch. "'But when he is himself he is one of the finest men I ever met.' in fact he told me the reason he did not meet you upstairs was to spare you the humiliation of a beating in the sight of others i submit that that unguarded remark of philip lynch convicts him of having been privy in advance to mr winter's intentions whatever they may have been or at least to his meaning to make an assault upon me but i leave to others to determine how much censure an editor deserves for inveigling a weak non-combatant man also a publisher to a pen of his own to be horsewhipped if no worse for the simple printing of what is verbally in the mouth of nine out of ten men and women too upon the street while writing this account two theories have occurred to me as possibly true respecting this most remarkable assault first the aim may have been simply to extort from me such admissions as in the hands of money and influence would have sent me to the penitentiary for libel This, however, seems unlikely, because any statements elicited by fear or force could not be evidence in law, or could be so explained as to have no force. The statements wanted so badly must have been desired for some other purpose. Second, the other theory has so dark and willfully murderous a look that I shrink from writing it. Yet, as in all probability my death at the earliest practicable moment has already been decreed, I feel I should do all I can before my hour arrives, at least to show others how to break up that aristocratic rule and combination which has robbed all Nevada of true freedom, if not of manhood itself. Although I do not prefer this hypothesis as a charge, I feel that as an American citizen I still have a right both to think and to speak my thoughts, even in the land of Sharon and Winters, and, as much so respecting the theory of a brutal assault, especially when I have been in subject, as respecting any other apparent enormity. I give the matter simply as a suggestion which may explain to the proper authorities, and to the people whom they should represent, a well-ascertained, but notwithstanding, a darkly mysterious fact. The scheme of the assault may have been, first, to terrify me by making me conscious of my own helplessness after making actual, though not legal, threats against my life. Second, to imply that I could save my life only by writing or signing certain specific statements which, if not subsequently explained, would eternally have branded me as infamous, and would have consigned my family to shame and want, and to the dreadful compassion and patronage of the rich. Third, to blow my brains out the moment I had signed, thereby preventing me from making any subsequent explanation such as could remove the infamy. Fourth, Philip Lynch to be compelled to testify that I was killed by John B. Winters in self-defense, for the conviction of Winters would bring him in as an accomplice. If that was the program in John B. Winters' mind, nothing saved my life but my persistent refusal to sign, when that refusal seemed clearly to me to be the choice of death. The remarkable assertion made to me by Mr. Winters that pity only spared my life on Wednesday evening last almost compels me to believe that at first he could not have intended me to leave that room alive, and why I was allowed to, unless through mesmeric or some other invisible influence, I cannot divine. The more I reflect upon this matter, the more probable, as true, does this horrible interpretation become. The narration of these things I might have spared both to Mr. Winters and to the public had he himself observed silence but as he has both verbally spoken, and suffered a thoroughly garbled statement of facts to appear in the Gold Hill News, I feel it due to myself, no less than to this community, and to the entire independent press of America and Great Britain, to give a true account of what even the Gold Hill News has pronounced a disgraceful affair, and which it deeply regrets, because of some alleged telegraphic mistake in the account of it, who received the erroneous telegrams though he may not deem it prudent to take my life just now, the publication of this article I feel sure must compel General Winters, with his peculiar views about his right to exemption from criticism by me, to resolve on my violent death, though it may take years to compass it, notwithstanding I bear him no ill-will, and if W. C. Ralston— and william sharon and other members of the san francisco mining and milling ring feel that he above all other men in this state and california is the most fitting man to supervise and control yellow-jacket matters until i am able to vote more than half their stock i presume he will be retained to grace his present post meantime i cordially invite all who know of any sort of important villainy which only can be cured by exposure and who would expose it if they felt sure they would not be betrayed under bullying threats, to communicate with the People's Tribune, for until I am murdered, so long as I can raise the means to publish, I propose to continue my efforts at least to revive the liberties of the State, to curb oppression, and to benefit man's world and God's earth. CONRAD WIGAND It does seem a pity that the sheriff was shut out, since the good sense of a general of militia and of a prominent editor failed to teach them that the merited castigation of this weak, half-witted child was a thing that ought to have been done in the street, where the poor thing could have a chance to run. When a journalist maligns a citizen, or attacks his good name on hearsay evidence, he deserves to be thrashed for it even if he is a non-combatant weakling, but a generous adversary would at least allow such a lamb the use of his legs at such a time. M. T. End of Appendix C. And of Roughing It. Read by John Greenman